Hey guys, don't you love how the podcasts from the big podcast networks record in expensive studios on expensive equipment, but they start their episodes with ads recorded in cars on iPhones? It's like the one part of the episode that the most money was spent on is recorded at a stoplight on the drive home. It's crazy, right? Oh, before I forget, this episode is brought to you by Jimmy's Porcelain Umbrella Stands, the perfect product for the podcast listening demographic. Jimmy was a broke college kid who loved these porcelain umbrella stands so much he bought the factory. Now he's offering a new one every month. This month's theme, Umbrella Science Fiction Slash Fantasy. So get your first month free with promo code Hitting Play. That's promo code TOILET. Hello and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me is someone whose kids always bring him number two pencils, Sean. Hi, Scott. You could call me something else today, too. What? Call me Mr. Butterfingers. <laughs> or, call me Mr. Butterfingers. <laughs> if you prefer. Sure, sure. Uh, well, this week we watched UHF, Weird Al Yankovic's 1989 cult classic movie. Just as a spoiler to any listeners, if you want to stop listening now, I will not be giving this movie any negative reviews at all. <laughs> I have nothing negative to say about this film at all. So my review will be, and my discussion will be totally positive of UHF, because it is one of my favorite films of all time. Top... Five, if not three, and that's you know depending on what Star Wars movie is currently in theater. So, <laughs> no, it, it is a great movie, and uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I can imagine if you've listened to uh, a number of our episodes, we we talk quite a bit about Weird Al. In fact, last week we talked uh, at length about Weird Al on Comedy Bang Bang and him on Space Goes Coast to Coast. So we love Weird Al on this podcast. Oh yeah, and it's, it's such a He's such a talent overall with everything he does. His music, his, you know, parodies, obviously, um, his original stuff, his, you know, TV shows and movies, as we're going to see. All Everything he does is gold in my mind. And it's just another wonderful example of his imagination and his, his love of um, entertaining, really. So this is going to be quite a ride we're going to go on in the next few minutes. Oh, yes. Uh, now, this movie was directed by Weird Al's manager, Jay LaVey who also co-wrote the film with Weird Al. Yes, yeah, that's true. They wrote the movie after Weird Al's second album, and they pitched the idea of having, like, a Weird Al movie. You know, he's going to have not only his takes on popular music like he's had, but also uh, movies and other forms of pop culture. Eventually, Orion Studios agreed to finance the movie as long as production costs were kept under $5 million. And uh, filming of this movie was actually done around Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, and some scenes in Texas, I believe, too. Okay. Filmed Dallas area, but mostly um, Tulsa, and I think also, you know, it's not referenced anywhere in the film that it takes place in Oklahoma. It takes place somewhere I think midwestern areas. What the um, what they kind of allude to in the film. Yeah, not California because you no. know Uncle Harvey has to fly in from California, but just they re- they reference the town. They just talk about the town. That's it. Yeah, no specifics really. Yeah. Now, uh, this movie was released on July 21st, 1989, and uh, for international release, the film was actually called The Vidiot from UHF. Yeah, and did you, I don't know if you saw Scott, but very interesting story about that. Weird Al actually hated the title of UHF. Hmm. It was actually something that was kind of pushed on him by Orion as a title 
for the U- U.S. release at least. He preferred for the entire title of the movie the, the Vidiot. That's what he wanted the, the entire thing to be for international and domestic release. Mm-hmm. But they were against that, and they pushed for UHF, which I guess I remember you know, when I was a kid seeing UHF and VHF stations on the TV, and that was kind of phasing out mm-hmm. when I was you know, around this time, 89 or so, 90. But you know, I guess right now it would have no reference point at all for younger viewers of this film. But UHF was kind of always the the channels with that were in the high numbers, the sixties, the seventies, that were you know the low budget stations basically. Yeah. Whereas the VHF stations that were the lower numbers were the network affiliates, like we see in the movie. So that's a, a real to life point um, about the way it worked. But back then, even it was kind of fading out. Cable was coming into play, so not many people, not as many people, were still using VHF UHF designators mm-hmm. so again weird al hated the, the title of uhf and for some reason again for international release they called it the vidiot from uhf which is bizarre but yeah that's what they went with yeah and this movie really had minimal success when it came out uh the box office revenue was actually 6.1 million and they did have like i said a budget of 5 million so you know it was a modest success but essentially you know in terms of movie making it was considered kind of a bomb. Uh, Orion had really hoped that this was going to be the movie that saved the studio, and it was not. Yeah, and I, you know, what I've read, it's not because of the movie itself so much. It was more that Orion put very little or no advertising into this film. They were basically bankrupt, like you mentioned. They were they were failing at this point. Yeah. And they really put, they stacked UHF against some real blockbusters. It was a, a heavy summer for movies in 89. Mm-hmm. Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, Batman was another one. License to Kill, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, the list goes on and on. It, You know, it basically, it had to compete with a Batman movie, a James Bond movie, a big-budget Disney movie, and sequels to Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones. I mean, this movie yeah. had no chance. Yeah, yeah, it really didn't. It's really a shame. And the fact that, like I, I mentioned, you know, there's no budget for advertising that was put into it. So no one knew about it. So that might have helped things. And Orion was just floundering at this point and it was done. So really a shame. It's turned into a cult classic. And I know they say that a lot of, about a lot of films. You know, I hear about cult classic status like Clerks and things like that. But this to me is is an ultimate cult classic film because it is so good. And they did such a good job with it. So it's just really a shame that when it came out, it couldn't compete with what was out, you know, coming out there already. Yeah, and part of it having that cult classic status. Now, it is a great film, don't get me wrong, but it had a very limited home release, and then yeah. it went out of print. And so, like, for a while, because it was, like, this movie you couldn't find, you couldn't get, and, you know, uh, prices of VHSs uh, were, you know, 50 to 100 or even more, you know, so people were really, like, revering this movie as this rare movie, you know, that you got to try to find. And finally, uh, MGM acquired the rights to release it on DVD. And when they did, it was like one of the top-selling DVDs. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah, and, and Shout Factory now issued a, a 25th anniversary DVD and Blu-ray in 2014. So it is quite available. In fact, also, if you have a Roku device, there's a channel called Tubi TV, which is, which is free. T-U-B-I TV. And UHF is currently on that. So you can watch it for free if you have a Roku. And I would say if you have the funds to invest in a DVD or Blu-ray, 
please go for it. I have the DVD copy myself. I've had it for a number of years. I was one of those fortunate ones that was able to scrounge it up somewhere when it was actually came out for the first time. And um, the commentary alone is worth the price of it. <laughs> Weird Al does the entire commentary with some guests that pop in. And just a, an excellent, it's one of the best commentaries I've ever heard for a DVD. So worth a, a view there and worth the price of the... And the Easter eggs that are on the DVD also are, are quite extensive. So Weird Al's sense of humor. So that's it's worth checking into. Nice. And picking up. Yep. Now this movie did very well when they tested it. You know, with the test audience, they loved it. Uh, that, that's the case with a lot of movies. Like uh, one particular example that I read was Young Einstein, the Yahoo Serious movie. The test audiences loved that one too. And again, just not a critical success. The same with this. Uh, the big movie critics of the time absolutely hated this movie. And yeah. uh, Weird Al himself has said that UHF is not a critic movie. No, no, it's... It's really not. It's not like a piano or something. You can't base it on. <laughs> Overall, it's just so well-rounded. You I mean you see so many comedies out there that are good in certain spots. We've talked about a few on this show, mm-hmm. but this movie, in my mind, is just so well done all the way around with casting, and the jokes and the editing is just great. And I, I saw the critic reviews. I knew Gene Sisko gave it nothing. And I mean, back in the day, <laughs> you can't, it's just ridiculous. Gene Siskel said, never has a comedy tried so hard and failed so often to be funny. Yeah, I disagree respectively with the late Gene Siskel on that. But to each their own, I guess. Roger Ebert, who was his, you know, critical partner for a long time, who had sometimes different tastes than him. Uh, he had a one star review of UHF. I gotta read this. He said that Weird Al's approach to satire and parody works for the short-form music video, but does not work to fill out a full-length movie, and he called Weird Al's screen presence a dispirited vacuum at the center of many scenes. <laughs> you know, it's just, again, ridiculous. Interestingly about this movie, too, and there were some positive reviews, or, or more positive reviews, and it actually uh, holds a, I think, 7.0 on IMDb. Mm-hmm. 65% uh, is- on Rotten Tomatoes. Which is respectable. Sure. I mean, honestly, especially for those two, especially for Rotten Tomatoes. But the funny thing about this film is it's rated PG-13, mm. which was a newer rating at the time. And, and I, you know, Weird Al actually was hoping for a PG rating, obviously. You want, you know, younger folks to be able to get into the film, too, and enjoy it. And, you know, ticket sales also. And there's a few major scenes in the film where the PG-13 rating pops in. And we'll talk about them as we go through and mention them. But, I mean, there is some blood it's humorous blood, I guess you can say. It's not like it's uh, gory blood. Yeah, yeah. But that's what kind of pushes it over the edge to from PG to PG-13. Yeah, the but language the, is pretty clean and everything. Yeah, just no language at all, um, as far as I can recall. Nothing major, just a few, you know. It's obviously, the blood scenes are obviously fake. It's not like they did super special effects on it. And the funny thing is, when this is replayed on TV occasionally, and broadcast TV, or when it was in the past... They leave those scenes in for some reason. You know, they don't take out even the thing that was it was edited for initially. So it was kind of a silly rating. And who knows how it could have done if it was PG, but... Yeah, I don't think it would have mattered. <laughs> Going yeah. up against those movies, forget it. Yeah, yeah, true. All right, well, we got a ton to get to, so let's get right into this. So speaking of the competing movies, we open on an Indiana Jones parody. Yeah. Wh- where we see the character of George Newman, of course, played by Weird Al Yankovic. And two men are in search of treasure. And uh, we see that one 
tries to betray Al, holding him at gunpoint, and of course Al whips his arm off. <laughs> I love how the guy just stands there, oaks down, and runs away when his arm gets whipped off. This cracks me up. Uh, the, the second guy abandons him, but as he runs out of like this tunnel, you see he gets hit by a train. Train goes right by the mouth of the cave. And this is the first inkling right here at this point where you know this is not going to... I remember watching this as a kid. And like, okay, this is going to be just a really funny type of movie. It's yes. not going to be super serious because, you know, obviously it's stupid, but it's it's funny. It's silly at every turn. <laughs> really parodying not just, you know, the music videos now or music, but getting into other mediums, which is awesome. Yeah. Where they see a funny uh, statuette built into um, the rock face. Yeah. And the guy says, oh, look, it, it, we can't go any further. It's evil. And it's just like this funny looking, like a uh, Inca <laughs> or Mayan carving of a guy sticking out his tongue. Yeah. So it's just this really, instead of this ominous uh, figure you expect to see on the wall carving, it's just this figure of a, like basically a making a face at Weird Al and the guy sticking his tongue out, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And also, as we go in, um, after the guy that abandons him, he's walking through these uh, stop signs and stop and, you know, do not enter. Just like normal signs, he's just walking by them. And the one that cracks me up always is one that says severe tire damage ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, George enters the temple alone he finds an oscar statuette on a pedestal he takes it uh after swapping it out with a bag of sand of course very reminiscent of raiders of the lost ark the temple crumbles behind him and we get that giant stone ball that chased indiana jones but here it goes around corners and it chases him all around the world and then squishes him completely flat yeah it's pretty enough. funny the funny thing about that oscar too is actually there was a um the actual oscar oscar folks didn't want the likeness to be exactly the same of the actual Oscar. Right, yeah. So this one is slightly different than what an actual Oscar looks like. No sword. No sword. It's actually covering its um, its crotch as it as it, he takes it. It's really funny. PG-13. PG-13. <laughs> and I like the whole gag, too, where he's trying to measure out the sand, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and trying to bounce the weight, and finally just throws the sand behind him and snags the, <laughs> the statue and walks away. <laughs> so I can even try the balancing... The weight act on it. So we go from this flat image of, of Weird Al uh, and fading into a flat, sizzling burger patty that George is staring at, and we see that he's daydreaming at his job at Big Edna's Burger World. And we learn from his conversation here with his co-worker slash best friend and roommate, Bob Steckler, that he always daydreams and it just gets him fired from all of these jobs. He can never hold down a job. He just is always dreaming too big. And he's played by David Bowie. Not that David Bowie. No, no, David Bow. David Bow. Well, I thought it was David Bowie. <laughs> B-O-W-E. Very close. Should have been David Bowie. <laughs> you know. Well, originally, it's funny, this role was offered to Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. But he uh, turned many, them down. Yeah, that was interesting. Many, um, actually, Seinfeld references in UHF. Um, of course, we see um, Michael Richards coming up soon, who was in Seinfeld right after this at the same time, basically, as UHF yeah. came out. But also, I, I read about this too, George Newman. I mean, I'm sure this is when, wasn't uh, this coincidental, but, you know, George is Jerry's best friend in Seinfeld, and Newman is uh, downstairs neighbor. <laughs> I was thinking about that too. It's like, you know, yeah. it's funny Michael Richards worked with a, a George in a Newman character. George Newman, yeah, before Seinfeld. So, yeah, um, definitely we'll see as we go through many bigger names in this film. Which is very surprising that there were so many. And, and a few, actually, that were cut out that are supposed to be cameos, which we'll talk about, too. Yeah. 
it's it's weird to think Jerry Seinfeld being in this role, you know, because you you want Al to be kind of like the center. Jerry Seinfeld was a pretty big stand-up or, you know, a rising stand-up at that time. Like you said, he was going to have his own show that year. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad that uh, David Bowe won the role. In fact, he won them over at the audition, and he just happened to be like a really big Weird Al fan. So it worked out perfect. Yeah, and he's perfect for this role as the second second guy in the friend. So it's pretty funny in this scene where, you know, George is talking about bigger things. He ends up squirting mustard on some customers as he's talking. Right across. Just across all, like, four people. <laughs> they burn a basket of fries. And then he begins to insult Edna. Is calling her a tub of lard. And, of course, oh. she's standing right behind him. And this actress, I'm like, bless her because she is a big woman. Yes. Strong-looking <laughs> lady. Picks up yes. both of them. And throws them clear across the property, which is pretty funny. And I love this effect when she throws them and she, you know, <laughs> wipes her hands off. And you can see him going up in the air and you hear that whole, uh, and then the crescendo and them coming down and hitting the ground. So she really chucked them pretty high. Yeah. This, this is something we ended up seeing as kind of a regular gag on uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You remember when DJ Jazzy Jeff would always get tossed out by yes, Uncle Phil? Yeah. <laughs> it just reminded me of that. This is so, the fact that they did, and she's because throwing thrown them a few feet or throwing them a little bit, but she actually chucked them up in the air and you hear that echo effect and them coming down <laughs> it's again. It's like in slow motion. It's really, yeah, they really went up high and, and fell straight down. It was really funny. So Bob and George drive back to their apartment next to Cooney's Karate School. And uh, <laughs> Cooney, yeah. of course, is played here by the famous Getty Watanabe. Getty Watanabe is one of my favorite actors of all time. Yeah. And the fact that he's in this film is is uh, amazing to me and wonderful. If you don't know who Getty Wananabe is, then you probably have never seen 16 Candles, which he plays a, a very funny character in that film. Also, Gung Ho with Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting, very excellent actor. I, I can't recommend the guy enough. He just cracks me up every time I see something with, with him in it. If John Lovitz was in this film, it would be the perfect... <laughs> film for me of all time it would be my favorite film of all time because he's my other favorite actor is john lovitz but yeah he plays a great role in this film really a crucial role in the film as we go on yeah um we also see here when they pull up to his cry school slash their apartment george's car is a nash metropolitan which i didn't do too much research on it it's just a weird looking little tiny car two-seater it looks like an old 50 i think it's actually a 56 or 55 nash metropolitan little tiny car Almost looks like a clown car. It's that small. Yeah. It was also featured in one of his videos also. So the car did make an appearance at another point in his career. Yeah, I just looked it up. Nash Metropolitans came out from uh, 1953 to 1961. Mm. The Metropolitan was sold as a Hudson when Nash and Hudson merged in 1954 to form the American Motors Corporation, AMC. Hmm, okay. So makers of like the Rambler and some other interesting cars of the time. So this must have been like a 53 Metropolitan then. It's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely something you don't see all the time, that's for sure. But it's really a perfect car for Weird Al's personality and and his character George in this film. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I love here, as they're walking in, (laughs) we see the karate school's upstairs, and a beginner, I guess, smashes through the second floor window. and uh, Just falls right in the pavement. (laughs) George greets Cooney. They're, They're obviously good friends. And uh, he's, like, telling him, oh, they're so stupid. Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I see another guy smash through the window. (laughs) That's what George mentions. mentions, Oh, it's beginner's class today, huh? He's like, yeah. (laughs) 
Now, Cooney was a role that was written specifically with Getty Watanabe in mind. And, uh, I'm not surprised. Another interesting thing is, you know, the Weird Al show, which came out later, uh, he also reprised his role of Cooney on that show. I was not aware of that. Check that That's out. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 I believe that was a uh, Shout Factory release, the Weird Al show. So, uh, interesting scene here in their apartment, especially with what they're eating here. Twinkie Wiener sandwich. Yeah, which is uh, a fantastic. I've never had one. I've, one of those things. Wherever I watch this, I wanted to try it just to oh. see what it tastes like. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I've read people have tried it that said it's absolutely horrible. Of course, it's, so if for the listener, it, it's a Twinkie cut in half. He places a hot dog and then covers it with spray cheese. So the Twinkie is basically the hot dog roll at this point. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> and Al's eating habits are very unusual in the film. As we're going through the scene, he's actually dunking it in coffee. <laughs> yes, uh, I the, forgot about that. <laughs> throughout the scene, you could hear the karate school. In the, they were upstairs next to the karate school at this point. So yes. as you know, they've gotten so used to it. And as they're walking through, you know, things are falling off the walls. Um, <laughs> you know, pots and, and cereal. It's just like, you know, it's a common day occurrence. Yeah, they don't even hear it anymore. No. Uh, Bob is sitting there all despondent. He feels that his life is ruined. And George tells him that he needs to grab life by the lips and yank as hard as he can. <laughs> now, you might have noticed in this scene, kind of, I think it's above where Bob is sitting. There's a Mad Magazine poster in George yes, and I, Bob's apartment. I know you would notice that. Yep, I oh, can yes. see that. Love Mad Magazine. Now, George's surname Newman, as we talked about, uh, that is picked uh, specifically as an homage to Mad Magazine, their mascot Alfred E. Newman, even though it's a different spelling. Yep. So that's where that comes from. Uh, George realizes that he's late meeting up with his girlfriend, Terry, who is played here by uh, SNL alum Victoria Jackson. Yep. On a side note here, uh, other actresses that auditioned for the part of Terry were Jennifer Tilly and Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would have been, in- been interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's weird to think of, you know, this alternate casting, uh, Jerry Seinfeld or Ellen DeGeneres. It would have just been a different movie, I think. I like Victoria Jackson. She has an interesting voice. She has an <laughs> interesting personality. Yes. I think it fits perfectly with the film. Yeah, I think it's it's a perfect fit. I love in the scene where <laughs> he's, he realizes that he's late. We see like a fist break through the wall and Weird Al just kind of picks up the arm and looks at the watch. <laughs> oh, I'm late. That's how he realizes it. Right in front of his face, pops through the wall. <laughs> so we cut to, I guess, this is, is this Terry's house? I think this is Terry's I, apartment here. Yeah, Terry's apartment, yep. And Terry's trying to lecture George about taking life seriously, and he's just more interested in dinner. He takes, like, a whole plate full of mashed potatoes, and as Terry turns to him, he's sitting there at the table, and he's shaping it into the form of Devil's Tower, just like Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This means something. <laughs> I like in this scene, though, it shows that what kind of relationship they have, and, you know, this is why I like Victoria Jackson and the character of Terry, because... It shows in this scene that she really does care about George and knows that he has a good imagination mm-hmm. and that he just really needs to find something that fits in with what he can do and what how he can use his imagination. As we've seen already with his daydreaming at work and, you know, this scene with the potatoes and it's just not working out having these, you know, part-time jobs. He needs something that's going to fulfill him. So she recognizes that and is not upset with him so much as just hoping he could find his way, I think. Yeah, definitely. Now, later, at, a, at I guess this is some sort of family function or party. Yeah, I've always assumed it's just like a, a party that he was invited to by his, his aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, well off, it seems. Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, George here learns that his uncle, Harvey Bilchik, 
is late because he's at a business meeting. Uh, that's what his, his Aunt Esther says. It's actually a poker game as we cut to it. And uh, he's winning in this poker game. He's doing quite well. But during this, Harvey also gets a call from a mysterious man named Big Louie. And Big Louie informs him that he won big at the track. Yeah, like his nonchalant attitude about it too. Harvey's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks a lot. And just hangs up on him. And Big Louie in these scenes, he's this very big, imposing figure that we only see from the back and to the side. So we only see one of his hands as he's on the phone. I think he has a uh, cigar in his hand when we see him. And he's sitting at a desk in a very luxurious office. We don't know much about him. This is all we see. So, uh, you know, we know that something's going to come into play with this character much later. I think you're supposed to assume that it's, you know, gangster. I think that's the uh, motif they're trying to put out there, the, the character type. Like you said, it's going to be, it has a very intimidating kind of weird voice. Yes. Deepish kind of voice. And it's just out there to say, you know, this is going to be, like you said, a character that's going to reappear down the line. Interestingly, Harvey, Uncle Harvey reminds me now of my uncle. <laughs> Not when this came out in 89, but the way he looks now is kind of what my uncle looks like. And same thing with the, uh, I don't think my uncle's a listener of the show. But same thing with the, <laughs> the attitude and the personality is very similar. And this is the first time I've watched UHF in a while. Yeah. And it really came to me this time. It's like, wow, it reminds me of my uncle. So <laughs> it's funny how life, art imitates life, you know? Sure. So when Harvey does show up at the party, he now has this large wad of bills. And in addition to that, the deed to Channel 62. Uh, we learn that he won it with a pair of sevens. He really doesn't think much of it. Uh, we learn that Channel 62 is a little UHF TV station on the brink of bankruptcy. And it's watched less than the fish tank at the pet store. <laughs> and we should also note that right before this, um, George had a brief conversation with his aunt about how he had lost his job. Mm -hmm. And so we, we kind of, the, the ideas are, are seated in her mind that, you know, he's available for any opportunities that come up. Yeah, he, he needs something. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we should also mention, too, at the beginning of this party, when he's called over, he's uh, in the middle of trying to give a dog a, a ladle full of punch in the punch oh, bowl. Oh, that cracks me up. Yeah, just a little, like, looks like a, a Scotty or something. Or he's like just, yeah, Jack Russell or something. <laughs> Jack Russell, and he's just trying to feed the dog. Wants to give <laughs> this dog punch so bad, and then he just gives up and, like, he throws the dog into the <laughs> punch bowl. The punch, huge punch bowl with all sorts of fruit floating in it. And it's just... <laughs> Oh, just hilarious. Yes. So Harvey has this Channel 62. He has the deed to it, and he has no intention of even keeping it. He says, you know, they can't even find someone to manage it. But it's on the brink of bankruptcy, the, the station. Yeah. yeah. It's going nowhere. No one will even want to manage it. So, you know, why even keep it? It's just kind of like, like he mentions. He won it with a pair of sevens. It means nothing to him. But Harvey's wife, Esther, just loves the idea of having their own TV station and comes up with the idea of George running it. Yep. It's the whole thing where Harvey's like, no way, he's not going to run it. And we cut to the next scene where the Nash is uh, driving up to the TV station with George and Terry. Yes. So apparently he didn't, he didn't win that conversation. <laughs> and we see that Channel 62 is just this little rundown building in the middle of nowhere. And I don't think they could have found a better location for this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it just looks awesome. Like you said, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. You can tell it's out in the sticks. It, the grass is high around the parking lot. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Dark parking lot. Like, it almost looks like and it's abandoned, an abandoned building. Just a fantastic location for this. Yeah. R little rundown building, giant antenna, but that's it. So, before they walk in, a hobo asks for change. 
This is a, a great scene here. You know, the, this like yeah. disheveled looking did, guy. If you didn't really watch this, I don't think pe- a lot of people would catch it. What actually happens? Yeah, <laughs> I think you know the whole idea is, oh man, this this area is so bad. There's you know hobos wandering around, and he. Uh, this is actually done by a kind of a character actor. I forget the gentleman's name. Um, uh, this who plays is this part? Vance Colvig Jr. Yes, um, and he's done a lot of characters kind of like this. Yeah, right after this, <laughs> I'm not. Sh- it might have even been his next role after this. He played Bum on Night Court, <laughs> and we should there say you hobo. Go. You know, it's not. It's not a nice term for for someone that that's without a home. This is how he's credited in the movie. He doesn't have a name. He's just called Hobo. That's his character. Ho- hobo. Yep. And he's credited as Bum on Night Court. Another term that's you know not so nice. I think Hobo is better than Bum. I don't know, but he's he's probably best for playing Clowny in Big Top Pee Wee. Yes, yep. One of many Pee Wee connections in this movie. We'll talk about a few more down the road. Just a side note, too. Ginger Baker from the, from the band Cream reportedly wanted to play this role. Yes, I did read that. It's crazy. But yeah, explain what happens in this scene, because this is very funny. So again, you know, you're, you'll have to, the audience will have to see that, okay, you know, the idea is this is a bad area with hobos and, and bums, whatever you want to call them, wandering around the studio. And he comes over to George and he asks for change. So George holds out his hand with change in it. And you see he's looking through, the, you know, character named Hobo. Hobo is looking through his hand for change. And basically he puts his soiled dollar bill in George's <laughs> hand and says, oh, great. You know, he's counting like 85 95 a dollar. So it wasn't like he was just asking for a handout. He actually wanted change for a dollar. <laughs> and it's one of those things you just might miss if you don't really pay attention to it yeah he's an honest hobo yeah yeah very just, interesting dude and he's got some interesting friends too he just wants change yep so inside the station as mr ed plays uh george and terry find this control room and it's covered with these bubbling beakers filled with brightly colored liquids a lot of dry ice effect here it, it looks very much like a laboratory in a cheesy horror film or even like dr forrester's lab in uh, mystery science theater 3000 yeah well and uh, they get frightened when Philo, the station's chief engineer, played by Anthony Geary, shows up and greets them. And, and Philo, of course, you know, looks the part of a mad scientist. He has, like, the the frizzy white hair and everything. And uh, Philo tells them that he lives there at the station. Very monotone voice. Just a very interesting character um, in Philo. He really plays a crucial part as the movie goes on. And, and speaking of Mystery Science Theater, the role of Philo was originally written for Joel Hodgson. Yes. Who was the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, Joel supposedly felt that he wasn't good enough of an actor and he turned it down. Crispin Glover was also approached. But supposedly, uh, from what I read, he only wanted the part of a used car salesman. Yeah, so, which, is a, which is very bizarre. Yeah, and it's strange, too, that we do get a used car salesman here, but it, it's not Crispin Glover. No, that's the role he wanted. The, that that weird uh, guy. And Crispin Glover is a weird dude. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> But the role eventually went to Anthony Geary, as I mentioned, who was best known previous for his work as Luke on General Hospital. And he liked the idea of playing Philo because it was a complete change from what he normally plays, you know, in soap operas every day. And uh, plus, of course, he also happened to be a big Weird Al fan. So, of course, it was a no-brainer for him. Yep. Now, he continued to act on General Hospital before and after this role. He stayed there until 2015. Yeah. He was on General Hospital from 1978 to 2015. 
I remember his character well. My mom used to watch General Hospital back in the day. <laughs> and I remember the whole Luke and Laura thing. You yeah. Know, yeah. He's been around. Oh, and I, I should also mention, too, there's a great article in the AV Club. Somebody did, a, like, a complete oral history of UHF. And, uh, yeah, there's there's some great facts in there as well. Oh, and, and I had to mention this. Just on a side note, the inventor of the first fully electronic television, his yep. name was Philo T. Farnsworth. Philo T. Farnsworth. Another Philo. And, of course, Philo T. Farnsworth, also the namesake of Futurama's professor, Hubert J. Farnsworth. So we see that Philo is kind of like this eccentric character, very good with technology and likes to tinker. Uh, so the scene ends as Philo shocks George with uh, 60,000 volts testing his interocitor. I like how he gives him those two things to hold, the, you know, obviously the positive and the negative or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And he's holding them kind of close. They like, hold these and he pushes them apart. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. And the look on George's face, it's like, okay, what's going to happen here? And you see this, this bolt effect and, of course, you know, Weird Al at this time in his career has this, this kind of afro and just kind of shoots straight up in the air. Yeah, cheesy, uh, like, purple lightning effect. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So the next day, George brings Bob to the station, hoping that, you know, this could be a, a new job opportunity for him as well. Uh, when they enter the building, they approach the desk of the disgruntled receptionist Pamela Finkelstein, played here by Fran Drescher. And the thing I noticed about this scene all the time is the door's falling off the hinges, first of all, the front door. <laughs> And it has one of those, like, 60s doorknobs with the doorknobs in the middle of the door. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. Just, you know, really emphasizing the age of the building. Now, we learned that uh, Pamela had worked there for two years, and she was hoping to be moved up to news reporting, but it just never happened. Gets a new boss every two weeks, every other week. Yeah. Now, this scene is interrupted by, as we were talking about, a commercial for Crazy Eddie's Used Car Emporium. And uh, this is... Uh... A scene where this crazy Eddie character promises that if he doesn't sell a car in the next hour, he's going to club a baby seal. <laughs> there's a seal on the hood of the cars. <laughs> yeah, there's a real seal. Barking. And I love, as he's talking about, I'm going to club this seal, and the seal just nods, you know, very enthusiastically. <laughs> uh, the perfect example of a car salesman, you know, a stereotypical car salesman with the cowboy hat and the... The leisure, the Sioux, it's, it's really funny. Yes, yeah, so this was the golden era for that that type of commercial. These, yep. You know, I'm crazy. My prices are so low. Uh, it was very funny. Uh, you know, but a real seal. And uh, don't worry, he ends up okay. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so from here, we cut to George and Bob at their desks at the station now. They're going over paperwork regarding Channel 62's programming. And George feels that they need more live shows than old reruns. A lot of Mr. Red and Beverly Hillbillies on the station. Yeah, which they do keep, by the way. Those, those are the two classic shows that George does keep on the station. Yep, you see the schedule. Now, just then, Pamela is given a package that's meant for the owner of Channel 8. This is a man named R.J. Fletcher. And George figures, well, you know, I'll just return the package in person. You know, it would be a good way to meet the competition. And Pamela right away is like, yeah, that's a bad idea. Because Fletcher has this reputation for... Not being such a nice guy. Yep. And now we cut from the scene to the large, you know, very modern-looking Channel 8 office building where R.J. Fletcher, who's played by uh, the great actor Kevin McCarthy, is interrupting a meeting to yell at his son for getting him a pencil that isn't a number two. This whole thing about number, yeah, number two pencils and just berating his son. <laughs> you, get, you see his three executives always together in the, uh, in the office mm -hmm. with R.J., must be the senior executives and the newscasters. And one, of course, is his son. 
The funny thing about, you know, this Channel 8 is that when I was growing up in Connecticut, the big affiliate for ABC was Channel 8. <laughs> so it really hit home watching this because you, you had that kind of idea, or I did as a kid, that, you know, oh, big cha- big bad Channel 8, the <laughs> little guy. Yeah, Channel 8 here is a network affiliate. So they carried one of the big broadcast networks. So they had a really yeah. nice big office building, which I believe they said was a Hewlett-Packard building in Oklahoma. You know, so they, they had sleek offices, that big budgets. Everyone there is wearing suits, much different from this little outpost, this little UHF station. Yep. Uh, just a note on Kevin McCarthy. Great actor. He had a career spanning, you know, like seven decades. Uh, he was in such movies as uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I remember him best as the villain from Inner Space, the, the yeah. Martin Short movie. Just this, you know, great uh, snarling face he can make. Great villain that he played. Uh, I, I read that, uh, you know, unfortunately he passed away in 2010. And he uh, he died on Cape Cod in Hyannis. That, that's bizarre. We have to see if he's buried here. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering. Well, see, I'm I don't curious. know. You know, people come here on vacation. I, I couldn't find if he actually did live on Cape Cod. Uh, Fletcher's son here, I should mention, is played by John Paragon who you may know better as the voice of Terry and Jombie from Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah, get the Pee-wee's, Pee-wee's Playhouse, uh, another Pee-wee's Playhouse reference here. Yeah. Mecca lecca hi, mecca hi That's right. So resuming the meeting, Fletcher demands to see a research report. This is very important for him to see, but it's told to him that, you know, oh, I put it on your desk yesterday. So he looks around, he can't find it anywhere, so he makes the assumption, well, the janitor threw it away. So he has the janitor, Stanley Spadowski, played by Michael Richards, has him called in and fires him. He's very, very mean and cruel to this man. Yeah, this goes through this whole thing. And and, uh, Michael Richards, this is like he's practicing for Kramer in in this movie. And and starring in this scene, it's just really funny. Oh, yeah. Mannerisms and his physical comedy is just hilarious. But you could definitely tell it's, it's Kramer. But this character's a little different. You know, th- this character, you can see he's uh, a little more limited in his capabilities. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's um, simplistic. I love how he has some, um, <laughs> why, why did I call you my office? You know, RJ says that to, to Stanley. He says, because you're lonely? <laughs> <laughs> he's got some great lines in here, too. <laughs> and he just goes through this whole routine with them. What's, what's missing from my desk? Uh, he just really thinks about it, looks at the desk, Stanley does, and, oh, stapler? <laughs> now, Weird Al actually wrote the part of Stanley specifically for Michael Richards. Yeah, and uh, he did a good job with it. But Michael Richards originally turned down the role. I guess he was dealing with uh, Bell's palsy at the time, but uh, mm-hmm. eventually he did decide to accept. So I, I don't know if it cleared up. I, I guess it did in time for the filming of the movie. But the role was also considered for Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, I can kind of see that, but not as much as Michael Richard. It just, again, it w- it's one of those things that wouldn't be the same. Be a different movie. So Stanley's dismissed, and as he leaves, however, Fletcher does find that research report, and uh, it was on his chair the whole time. Ha ha ha. Yep. What really shows what kind of characters is going to be, if you haven't noticed already or figured it out, he's a jerk. Yeah. And, you know, instead, like a normal person, if they berate a janitor like that, and they found the report they're looking for, we'll call him right back in, and made right but he doesn't care you know just no it's this expendable human so we cut to george entering the channel 8 offices with the package as fletcher is just ending this meeting so george calls out hey rj and the entire bustling office comes to a silent halt and fletcher you know, slowly turns around he fires george in this scene for stealing mail and george explains well you know i don't work here 
and Fletcher threatens to call the police to report his trespassing. You know, just not giving him a chance to explain himself or introduce himself or, you know, anything. So Fletcher looks at his watch and he counts down the seconds until he calls the police. So George just quickly leaves the office. As he enters the hallway towards the elevators, he sees Stanley the janitor getting his one treasured possession, his mop, getting taken away from him. He rips his shirt off the guy's back. That's where, again, we see the physical comedy of Michael Richards. <laughs> yeah, flailing just around. like flailing on the ground, trying to hang on to this mop. Had it since he was eight years old. <laughs> it's really, saying it's really his mop. It doesn't belong to anybody else. <laughs> it's a nice dramatic scene by right, Michael Richards after this, too. He's oh, yeah. He's talking to George. And we see that George feels really bad for him. You know, he's seeing this poor guy on the floor getting this mop wrestled away from him. He's all emotional. Uh, he Stanley cries to George about being thrown out like moldy tangerines. <laughs> Pack of moldy tangerines. <laughs> so George offers him a job as the janitor at Channel 62. Yeah, which which uh, really Stanley accepts and is very excited about. He's going to do a great job for him and... Tries to, tries to clean his glasses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Takes the glass off his face. Let me clean your glasses for you. Just showing his enthusiasm for this, this new opportunity. So we cut to City Hall as Pamela awaits the mayor leaving his city budget meeting while talking to George on a payphone. So we see that, you know, right away gave Pamela this opportunity she wanted for the past two years. So that was good. George wants her to delay the broadcast until she meets up with her cameraman. This is a man named Noodles McIntosh. Yep. And for a while, she looks around and can't see him, but she looks down and we see that he is played by the great Billy Barty. Yes. He had been acting since the 20s. He's just, the, you know, this iconic actor. He's a little person and um, he's done many, many roles, like you said, since the 20s and, and just and a lot of I iconic type of films too. early Hollywood. So he's been around for a while when UHF came around, but plays is a really is interesting role of um, noodles. Yeah. We should mention, too, that out front of City Hall here, we see two men on a park bench. It was It's the hobo that we saw earlier and his blind friend. And uh, he's trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. So the blind man moves a couple around and shows his friend the hobo. Is this it? No. Is this it? No. And they just keep doing that over and over this, again. This is a random scene they threw in there. <laughs> So next, Channel 62 cuts to a special report. We see Pamela being shot from a very low angle, which is pretty funny, you know, due to Noodles' small stature. Yep. His, his camera actually has Noodles in, in, engraved in the side of it. Uh, it looks like the camera's about uh, 50 years old at that point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very, very ancient camera. <laughs> now, when the mayor emerges, Pamela goes over, hoping to get a few words with him. But Noodles is tripped by the Channel 8 crew breaking his camera. I believe it's even Fletcher's son is the one that sticks his leg out. Yeah, two of the guys. Just just to be jerks. And, you know, Pamela's trying to get in there. She's trying to have this interview with the mayor. And Noodles, unfortunately, his camera's broken. He's on the ground. And just, just a very pathetic type of scene. And just it makes it really feel for him, you know? Yeah. And they tell Pamela that broads don't belong in broadcasting. That's their, their line that they give her. Yeah. So we cut back to Channel 62 at the station. Pamela's cleaning Noodle's elbow scrape. This looks pretty bad. Yeah, he's put some skin off there. And she complains to Fletcher over the phone about the way she was treated by his crew. And Fletcher laughs her off saying, you know, oh, I always told them never to call chicks broads. Yeah. yeah you know, so, so. he has no sympathy. Again, you could see the more of the character development on RJ's part. It's, it's not going well for him. What we see of his character so far. Now, from here, we cut to one of George's new live programs meant to revitalize Channel 62. And this is a show called Town Talk. 
in which George welcomes his special guest, high school shop teacher Joe Early, played here by comedian Emo Phillips. Uh, this is emo- so hilarious. This is yes. my, one of my favorite parts of the movie, if not my favorite part. Now, Emo and Weird Al are good friends in real life, so he created this Joe the shop teacher role for him. And Emo Phillips really has a unique look if you've never seen him before. How would you describe him, Scott? He's kind of got like a long, longer hair. You know, he kind of makes like a mopey face. And he has a, a very interesting way of speaking. Yep, very interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah, just really, I mean, it reminds me of an ostrich, honestly. But just very, <laughs> very, very tall, lanky, just a character, definitely. So as Joe demonstrates the use of the table saw here for George, he gets distracted and slices his left thumb like clear off, and it begins <laughs> squirting blood everywhere. And for a long time. Uh, that's where I got my Butterfingers line. Call me Mr. Butterfingers. <laughs> and George is horrified. I mean, it's just holding it up and his blood spraying out of the spe- where his thumb was, was a few seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> we can see why this had the uh, PG-13 rating. This is one of the what's one of the scenes, yeah, that pushes the PG-13. Again, it's not gory; it's just it's just humorous blood. He's looking down at it; it's spraying him like right in the face <laughs> as he's looking. It's like going everywhere; it's going all over George. And he's saying, "I think it's on the floor somewhere." <laughs> yeah, George is looking around on the floor. And Joe is more embarrassed than anything else. He's like, oh, is my face red? Is my face red? <laughs> There's one facial expression I love of, of Emo in this scene. Right before he cuts his finger off, and uh, I'm looking for the exact line, but they walk over to the table saw. He's about to do his demonstration. Joe, the shop teacher, is having a hard time remembering what the saw is called. <laughs> and George says, oh, it's a table saw, you know? And he gives him this look, like this little, like, nod, like he's a know-it-all. It's just a funny, I can't even describe the expression. It's the funniest expression. Yeah, it was really funny. And we get the first scene here of uh, one of uh, the cameramen at U62. Yes. Who is a, a large um, African-American fellow uh, manning an ancient camera and eating a sandwich as this is going on. He just looks horrified, holding a sandwich <laughs> in one hand as this is going on with the blood and the finger. Yeah, this this cameraman, he's not given a name, but he's played by Lou B. Washington. Yep. Yeah, he's, he's a bigger part. As we go on, we see some more of these uh, show ideas that come up. Um, he, he's actually in a couple of the shows. There's a, actually a couple of deleted scenes with Emo in UHF, they don't show. Uh, one is actually find George finds the finger or the thumb, <laughs> and he gives it to um, Joe, the shop teacher, who takes it, looks at it, and puts it in his pocket. And there's also another alternative scene of this where he takes it and puts it in his mouth. Oh. <laughs> and he starts talking with the thumb in his mouth and is like mumbling as he's talking of his uh, strange cadence. So I can see again why they didn't add those into the film. It was graphic enough without, without those extra details. <laughs> and I love how this movie has these little segments. You know, we get a lot of story and then we stop abruptly and we cut to commercials. Uh, we cut to, you know, live shows on Channel 62. It's really fun the way that they do this. And so uh, we next cut to a commercial for Spatula, Spatula City. City. Spatula City. It's a giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. Uh, why, no money down. Everything must go. Why pay more? And they have signs, you know, it's like all sorts of spatula for every bar mitzvahs, every occasion you could possibly imagine. Spatula City. <laughs> All shapes, all sizes, 
uh, people are going crazy. We start with a family that they need a spatula, and the father's like, well, you know, let's go to a spatula city. The, the family's all excited about it. Uh, in the commercial, the neighbor, credited here as spatula neighbor, <laughs> this is played by Sarah Allen. Now, she was Daryl Hall's longtime girlfriend. She co-wrote many of Hall & Oates' hits, including uh, Private Eyes, I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, and Maneater. Wow. Yeah, and their first hit, Sarah Smile, that was written about her. Okay, interesting. Yeah, just uh, this little part here, a spatula neighbor. Spatula neighbor. <laughs> this, I love this commercial. This is great. You know, we see spatulas being used as Christmas gifts and uh, a declaration of love over a romantic dinner. And uh, we also meet Cy Greenbloom, the owner of Spatula City. Yeah, who's this very, very monotone uh, gentleman who says, I like spatula so much, I bought the company. <laughs> This is actually a reference, like a lot of things in UHFR, to um, a real incident with Remington Electric Razors mm-hmm. and their chairman in the 70s. This happened in, in the mid-70s. Victor Kayam, who said the same thing, basically. I like the shavers so much, they bought the company. <laughs> and Spatula City has seven locations, which are open till midnight. Yes. Uh, also. It flashes on the screen, open till midnight. And we see this crowd of people frantically running into the store. They, they have to get in there. This is like an emergency. Pushing over people to get in. You see, in Spatula City, there's carts. Yes. One lady had like a hundred spatulas in her cart, filled to the brim with spatulas. Yeah, this is one of many funny commercials here. Yep. And so cutting back to the Channel 62 live stage, George emerges from this kind of fake plywood house background for a show called Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse. <laughs> his, his attempt at uh, making original programming... <laughs> and he's going to be a, a kid show host at this point. Yeah, we, we cut to the stands and we see a few disinterested kids kind of just sitting oh, the, there. The hold- kids look like they just want to be anywhere else. This is the funniest thing. Yeah, they're like holding their heads, kind of like half asleep. Yeah. George goes over to the kids. He greets a boy asking his name. He says, Billy. Ah, uh, Billy what? And the kid just spits right in his face. <laughs> and this is a real nasty spit. I mean, this is real, and it kind of hangs off the end of George's nose. You know, it's oh, it's so disgusting. And you see the kid laughs. Did you notice that the scene? Yeah, I I heard this was done numerous times because the kid cannot stop laughing about this. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. So George next introduces Bobbo the clown, who you know, of course, this is his friend Bob, dressed up as a clown, who he smashes in the face with a frying pan. Uh, Bobbo is not so enthused. We see him kind of like holding his nose in pain, kind of adjusting the clown nose. And it actually did hit him in the face on, on the first take of this. Oh. Yeah, so it split his lip, which the makeup covered up. But that's what you can see. The the books of pain in this uh, the scene is, is pretty realistic. Wow. He went a little too far when he was moving the frying pan. <laughs> uh, George next feeds him Yappy's dog treats, uh, calling them butter cookies. And, uh, yeah, so they come to the realization as uh, George is force-feeding these cookies into his mouth. He's like, oh, these are Yappy's dog treats. And Bob runs away to vomit. <laughs> to real liver and tuna taste. Yes. And you hear the vomiting in the background with just a hint of cheese. Oh. <laughs> and so we cut to Terry, who we learn is a dentist. Uh, she's working on a patient here, and the, the TV's kind of like one of those uh, TV mounts where it's up in the corner of the room. As, uh, as she's working on this guy. And as she does, we see that Pamela is interviewing the leader of a local gun organization who is very much against gun control. So this is interrupted by a special bulletin by George, 
uh, wishing Terry a happy birthday and offering to take her and her folks out to dinner at Cafe Francais at 7.30. And, uh, you know, Terry is, is so shocked. She ends up twisting the dental implements in her patient's mouth. The poor guy, like, ah! It's fecal rape in the air, yeah. <laughs> so from here, this cuts to our next commercial. This is Plots Are Us Mortuary Service. It's just this horrible scene of just talking about a sick of these shoddy burials. And there are people walking through a graveyard and there's limbs sticking out of the ground. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> and this graveyard, legs and also hands. It's just a, oh, horrible. We learn that Plots R Us features free parking and a salad bar. And we get these like still photos and this <laughs> we see people at a salad bar like dressed up, you know, in black and like very solemn expressions on their faces as they're loading up their plates. This is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and they also have a layaway plan according to the uh, the signage. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah, and the sign, the Plots R Us sign. So as this commercial ends, we see George working hard at his desk as programming returns to a broadcast of the Beverly Hillbillies. And this cuts to a music video of Weird Al's song Money for Nothing slash Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. This is Weird Al's parody of the video for the Dire Straits hit Money for Nothing, which at the time, that video uh, having CGI animation, that was a big deal. This original video that it's, you know, parodying was iconic. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really big for the time. Interesting thing about this parody and his song is that the leader of Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler, agreed to let him do the parody on the condition that he could play the uh, lead guitar oh. for the the actual parody. the The subject of the parody is is actually playing in the the parody of his own music, which is I think a very rare thing in Weird Al's uh, collection. Yeah, his, his art. Yeah, and, and Mark Knopfler does get a thanks at the end of the movie, so that. That explains a lot. I figured it was just thanks for the permission, but no, actually, thanks for playing. That's awesome. Yeah, yep. It's good when when people have a good sense of humor about their work, you know? Yeah, most of Weird Al stuff, you know, parodies throughout time have been well-received, and they re- the artists really think it's a uh, a compliment mm-hmm. to be parodied. So there's one couple people that really did not. Michael Jackson, I know, did not want anything parodied. But yeah, Prince was another one didn't want anything. Prince, yeah, and uh, yeah, there was a Coolio issue with uh, with Amish Coolio, Paradise. That's it. But yeah. supposedly it was you know just a miscommunication. Yep. So yeah, I mean, like I said, having CGI was huge. CGI characters. This is pre Pixar and all you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, but Weird Al having it as well that was also pretty big. In this version. The two CGI characters are a thin Weird Al, uh, slash George Newman, and a stocky Jed Clampett-like character that was uh, taking the place of the the guy that's kind of like the mover in the in the video, the original video. Yeah. And I was so surprised to see this video in the movie. That I should mention, this is the first time I'm getting a chance to see this movie, just because... Which is, which is a, a, a sin, really. Well, it's a shame, but it, it has to do with my age. You know, I'm a couple years younger than you. Uh, this movie came out before I was in kindergarten. And, and so, my, you know, unless my parents brought me to see it, which they didn't, I, I didn't get a chance to see it because the home video release was so limited. So all these years, I've heard of UHF. It was maybe on Comedy Central once in a while, but we didn't even have that channel here for years. So yep. it's just one of these movies I would have never come across. Uh, it's funny because growing up, I loved when VH1 showed uh, Al TV. And they would show yes. it in reruns and everything. And this music video was shown on Al TV. Al TV was great because they showed the original video and then his parody. So you can compare them. And I used to love this. 
And this was one of the videos that they showed. It was uh, the original Dire Straits Money for Nothing and Weird Al's Beverly Hillbillies. I had no idea this was actually taken directly from the movie. And it makes sense because now seeing this movie, I noticed that George Newman's name is on the Beverly Hillbillies clip. Yeah, yep. It's actually a shot-by-shot reproduction of Money for Nothing, which is amazing. So the final shot of the music video is the Weird Al character asleep at his desk, which fades into real life as George is awoken by Stanley, who has just finished polishing all of the doorknobs. <laughs> yeah, so we go into this, this improv that Michael Richards does, one of the only two of, in the film, um, where he's just talking about, he asks Ms. George this question, Stanley does, after we get the doorknob polishing scene, he actually does this push right into George and frightens him, and he's just asking if he was traveling through outer space, he was going at the speed of light, and he started screaming when your brain explodes. Just goes into this weird <laughs> question. And, you know, uh, this is really, again, Michael Richards is really hilarious in his uh, comedy skills Yeah, in this film. Yeah, you know, he, he had some troubles later on, as as we all know very, quite famously. This is, uh, this is him at his comedic peak. You know, this is like vintage Michael Richards here. Yeah. You know, so, we're, you know, we're not stating our opinion about the guy as a person, but... Uh, as far as his performance goes in the character of Stanley, this is hilarious. But he's even been able to make fun of himself about that incident. I know in Kirby Enthusiasm, he made fun of himself about that. So yeah. I, I'm hoping it was just a one-off thing. Yeah, and, who knows? You know, you know it, it's yeah. hard. You know, you, you got to separate the art from the artist sometimes. And some yeah. people don't want to do that. And some people are okay with it. And, you know, respect however you feel about this guy. But, you know, this is just an early version of his work, and it's this is a very funny performance. Yep. So we cut to Terry and her parents. They're all dressed up. They're waiting at a table for George at the fancy Café Francais. It's very uh, funny to see Terry here with the large shoulder pads, you know, like <laughs> the, the big fluffy dress. Yeah. <laughs> and they're waiting quite a while. Now, cutting back to the station, Bob has been crunching the numbers, and he tells George that Channel 62 will be flat broke by the end of the week. That's the bad news, and there's no good news. No, yeah, that's what he says. Good news and bad news. Good news, bad news thing. (laughs) And George is disappointed. You know, he's really hoping that this job was going to be different from all the others that he had. You know, this one was special, but again, it's only going to last for a week. So he says, at least I have Terry. And just as those words come out of his mouth, he remembers the date that he set up with Terry and her family. And now it's 930, two hours after he said he was going to be there. Just so. as he's reaching for the phone, it just starts <laughs> ringing. You can see his look on his face like, oh, he knows what it was. And basically, Terry tells him what for and that she doesn't want to, he's an insensitive creep and doesn't want to see him again. Yeah, they're completely through. Yep. I just love that, though. He goes to grab the phone, it rings, and then he's like, oh, and he just kind of reluctantly picks it up. Yep. Now, from here, we cut back to the set of Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse, where George plays a very miserable Uncle Nutsy. And the kids yeah. are still just not enthusiastic about being there at all. And one of the kids says, I want to go home. He's like, shut up, you little weasel. <laughs> <laughs> I love this little speech he gives to the kids. <laughs> yes. We're going to have so much fun. And we're going to forget how miserable we are and how much life sucks. <laughs> it's just a horrible state at this point. The bomb of the bottom. He, he he introduces a, a sad cartoon about a pathetic coyote in his futile pursuit of a sadistic roadrunner. <laughs> he storms off the stage. 
So Bob tries to convince George to stay, but George has Stanley instead take over the show for him. He's just too sad to host, so he just has Stanley fill in. So Bob follows George into a bar, and we notice that the bartender is on the phone talking about what he's watching on TV and how he's never seen anything like it. Now, I should note here, the bartender here is played by Robert K. Weiss. He was a producer on all three Naked Gun films, as well as Police Squad, which he, I believe, wrote on as well. Uh, He was the executive producer of the movies Tommy Boy and Black Sheep, the uh, Chris Farley films. He co-created and wrote on the show Sliders. Oh. And he directed the Weird Al music videos for Like a Surgeon, One More Minute, and Dare to be Stupid. Wow. Okay. And he has this awesome role in UHF, which I'm sure is a crowning achievement for all that. (laughs) Well, you know, he's more of a behind-the-camera type of guy, but, you know, very well connected to Weird Al at this point, directed, you know, some music videos and stuff, and was uh, very much involved in the TV and film industry. And and it makes sense. Remember, Weird Al gets a cameo in one of the uh, Naked Gun sequels, so he kind of, like, paid back the favor to his friend, it seems. That's true. So that makes way more sense now that I found that out. But yeah, they're at the bar, and they don't think anything of it. It must have taken a little while to get there, but everyone is so uh, interested in what's on TV. Bob and George have no idea. They, they just order their drinks. They're talking about what they'll do next. But everyone at the bar gets up, runs over to the TV, and they yell, He's coming back on! The bartender turns the volume up on the TV. We see that everyone is watching Staley Spadowski's Clubhouse with rapt attention. Yep. This is where he goes into his second improv, Michael Richards, mm-hmm. about this dream he had <laughs> about his candy bar, his, his head being a candy bar and birds pecking at it. <laughs> they are loving Stanley Spadowski here. Uh, the kids in the stands, they're now happy. Uh, the bar patrons are laughing along. I mean, this is a children's show, and, and these adults at this bar are just loving it. And just cracking up. Paying very close attention. Bob and George just stare at each other in disbelief. It goes into this impassioned speech about life and that the mop that George gave him. It's it's like this beautiful moment. And all the bar patrons are just watching it and just, you know, getting into it. It's really funny. This is pre-Forrest Gump, mind you, where he says, life is like a mop. I thought that was kind of interesting. He goes on to further explain this metaphor in a rousing speech reminiscent of the speech given by Peter Finch's character, Howard Beale, in the film Network. Yep, yep. So the people at the bar are applauding and cheering. Bob and George, still in disbelief, they just run out of the bar. They sprint back to the station. Yeah, that's very funny. And we see here um, George's weird food choices and drink choices. Or he orders a blueberry daiquiri. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) At this little rundown bar. Yeah. So as George and Bob arrive back at Channel 62, we see that Pamela is now taking all kinds of phone calls from interested viewers. George then asks Stanley if he would be willing to host the show every day. And Stanley agrees, but only if he can still be the janitor. Yeah. George's this worried expression on his face when he's, you know, Stanley's thinking about it. And before he asks if he can still be the janitor, it's funny. He's like, oh, okay, it's a deal. I'm going to go clean the toilets now. <laughs> the bathroom. <laughs> so we next cut to the very next episode of Stanley Spadowski's Clubhouse as Stanley pops up from the middle of a model train set. Uh, Cutting to the stage, we see that much more care is taken into the production. It has a large set, stands full of enthusiastic people, and a large sign featuring Stanley's face. Yep. I believe also the the model train set kind of explodes around Stanley's head. (laughs) (laughs) It's those kind of jerky, like Kramer-ish moves. Look at the explosions. Yeah. (laughs) Now, cutting to the station offices, Bob tells George that Stanley's show is now sold out for the next three months. 
The sponsors love him, and if they only had a few more shows, they'd really be in business. And George says, I got some ideas about that. And hands him uh, a bunch of uh, index cards with ideas. And the look on his face is just like, what, 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 is, what is this? <laughs> but they're good ideas, as we find out. From here, we star wipe to one of these new shows, Wheel of Fish, with Cooney, <laughs> the karate instructor, as the host. Now, do you want to explain Wheel of Fish? Oh, Wheel of Fish. <laughs> is a I guess you know I don't understand exactly if I don't think anyone knows how exactly the game works there's a Vanna White type uh, character three contestants and there's a there's a board with fish uh, icons on the board with different things that spin that's, that's the best way I could describe it almost like Wheel of Fortune where you you know you spin the uh, the letters around yeah with a bunch of fish fish icons and yeah, Cooney is there, and he um, you know talks to the previous winner, Phyllis Weaver. And <laughs> it's her turn to uh, spin the wheel of fish. <clears throat> and there's actually a big wheel that has fish tied stapled to it. Yep. Also, I mean, these fish are not just you know trout or these are like sea fish, blue fish, and uh, red snapper. Huge, Huge real fish that are stapled to this board, this wheel that she's spinning with the clicker and the clacker and the whole thing and to see where it lands. And these are real fish from purchased from the fish market in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by the way. These are real fish. Yes. And Miss Weaver is, wants to get a bluefish, is trying to get a bluefish to land on that. And the wheel stops and points to the red snapper, <laughs> which, uh, you know, Cooney calls very tasty. And now... Uh, Miss Weaver gets a choice. She can take the red snapper, which the Vanna White character comes out holding a red snapper in her hands, a huge, real one. Huge, huge fish. red snapper. Or Hero Sun's coming down the aisle of one of his assistants, and also a uh, a karate outfit with a table, like a little um, TV dinner table with a box on it. And he says, "You can take the red snapper, or what's in the box." And you get the whole Price is Right type of audience participation with, you know, people are pointing to the box saying, take the box, take yeah, the box. It's and almost like a let's make a deal. Like, let's make a deal. Yeah. yeah that, that, that kind of genre. And Phyllis Weaver is looking between the box and the red snapper and she can't decide. And it cuts back to the Vanna White character. And finally she decides to take the box. <laughs> and then Hero Son lifts up the box and there's nothing there. And you get Cooney saying, nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and he gets, of course, you're stupid, you're so stupid. <laughs> this catchphrase. <laughs> but yeah, a little background about this. Um, like you mentioned, Scott, these fish were bought from the uh, the fish market in Oklahoma and Tulsa. In the morning, they were purchased. And this was filmed in the summer oh. in a, a under lights in the, the studio. And I guess they're trying to get the mechanism after they, they stapled the fish to the wheel. They're trying to get the mechanism to work and spin properly. Long story short, they didn't get this going until later on in the afternoon Ooh. when they, they actually filmed the scene. <laughs> so Al mentioned in the commentary that the, scene, the set was quite ripe for the uh, the filming of this with these dead fish all over the place. Oh, man. That wheel you must know? have weighed like hundreds of pounds. Those fish oh, were giant. You just have to see it. it. If you're listening to this and you've never seen UHF, just Google Wheel of Fish. I'm sure it will come up. Or UHF Wheel of Fish. It's just so funny to see. <laughs> Not even pictures of fish. Just the actual fish tied to this, this wheel. So we next cut to Philo in the darkened Channel 62 control room. Uh, we see all, you know, again, those 
bubbling beakers and test tubes everywhere. And he turns to the camera after pouring some liquid out of a test tube. He holds up a piece of paper and he introduces himself and the name of his show written on the paper, Secrets of the Universe. (laughs) So in this episode, Philo is teaching the audience how to create plutonium from common household items. (laughs) That's all we get. We never see exactly this process. Uh, But this cuts to another new show, Raul's Wild Kingdom, hosted by Raul Hernandez. And this show features animal lover Raul showing off the many pets in his apartment. All sorts of things in his apartment. Birds and animal, (laughs) different gophers and different things. It's amazing how many things he has in his apartment. Now, we should mention Raul would have had a bigger part in this movie. In fact, he did. They filmed a lot of scenes that they had to reshoot. He's played here by the comedian Trinidad Silva. Uh, We only see Raul in these segments because, sadly, he died in a car accident between filming. So his his role in the movie had to be reduced, and the film at the very end is dedicated to his memory. He's such a good actor and such a funny guy. Oh, it's hilarious. These, uh, you know, like the the show um, cutaways, like you see here in the commercials, really make this movie. I mean, Mm. they could have gone many different ways with this, and... The movie is great, but without these, it wouldn't be the same at all. It would really detract from it. These just make the film. Yeah. And uh, so he talks about these animals, and he actually, you know, you think for a second, he's going into a, a description about the turtle and how it you know, has protective <laughs> shell, and, you know, it, it, it has its own home in its shell. So I think this is a decent show. Mm-hmm. But he goes to this thing that many people don't know that they also are nature suction cups. And he licks one, the bottom of one, and throws it to the ceiling. <laughs> you hear the sucking sound. <laughs> and then he walks over to his dresser. He shows off his ant farm. And again, he's stating some facts. It's like a kid's, you know, animal show that you would see like on an early Saturday morning or something. But then he shows how they don't like it when you when you shake things up. And he, he shakes it to get them all mad and agitated. Oh, yeah, they don't like it when you do this. <laughs> So we cut uh, we cut briefly back to Bob and George. They're watching this on on TV in horror, and they we learn that they think that the other hired this guy. Like, oh, I thought you hired him. No, it was like, where did you find this guy? I thought you hired him. So who knows how Raul even got on? I think this is something that they had to add after the fact to make it look yeah. like Raul was just this random guy that just showed up on the station. But it, it is a funny joke that Raul's just this guy that <laughs> they don't know who hired him or how he even got on the air, but now there he is. And next we get the most horrifying part of the uh, oh my goodness. episode of Raul's Wild Kingdom, which still cracks me up to this day. Where his next thing he's showing his audience is he's showing that how poodles can fly. Yes. There's these little toy poodles running around his apartment. We should mention, too, this is like Ace Ventura's apartment, if you ever seen yeah, that oh, movie. there's animals everywhere. There's it, turkeys. There was a turkey there walking around. Iguanas and parrots and everything. Cages all over the place. And, and <laughs> it's just like there's animals everywhere. So he picks up this poodle and he says, okay, Foofy, you ready? And he walks to the window and he goes, one, two. Two, he throws the poodle out the window. Get ready, fly. And all you hear out the window, he's looking out the window. He's on the second floor of his apartment here, of this building. And you hear, yip, 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 <laughs> It's the ground. And it just, it's all, you know, sometimes it takes him a little bit to learn how to do it right. And he takes another poodle. It cuts back to George. And they're just looking at this. And they're just, again, horrified what they're watching. <laughs> 
And oh, Gigi, your turn, Gigi. And you see, next scene is this <laughs> pool flying out the window. <laughs> and it looks like at the bottom of um, there's a building where the pool hits. Is a pile of poodles. Yes. I, I was waiting for the scene where we see that the poodles are okay, but no, they're not. It's terrible. It's <laughs> just, just the sound effects of the yip, 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 yip. And then just grunt. But one of the deleted scenes that, unfortunately, you know, is not in the film, ends up on the cutting room floor because of the tragic death of Trinidad Silva, was the pool's revenge. There was a scene at the end where the pools actually find him in, in the, or, or some poodles, Mm-hmm. Find him and start attacking him. Oh, okay. At the end of the film. So. All right. So the, we'll say the poodles did live and they they got their revenge. It just they didn't yeah, have time to include it. Let's be positive and, and say it, they did survive somehow. And in real life, the poodles are okay. We, there's a thanks at the end of the movie for the uh, the person that was in charge of uh, I guess the poodle wrangler. You could call them. Oh, really? Okay. Y- yeah. Well, of course, they're not going to actually kill Poodles, so... No, no. But, I mean, I'm sure they were handled with care and everything. It was just a, a trick of the editing where he tosses them out the window, and then we get yes. his reaction shot and all that stuff, so... Oh, man! <laughs> yeah, he's, he's very disappointed. Like, he wasn't trying to hurt these animals. He, uh, it looks like he honestly thought they were going to do it, and... He thought Poodles can fly. Yeah, just wasn't going to happen. Nope. So as you mentioned, as Raul looks down upon this pile of dogs and disappointment, we mercifully cut away to Terry's answering machine as George apologizes and begs her for one more chance. Uh, zooming back slowly, we see that Terry is home. She's sitting next to the phone. It seems like she wants to pick up. You can see it in her face, but she decides not to as George's message goes on and on and he's screaming and crying. in hell! Yeah, <laughs> Well, this is another scene I read that, um, just like the kid before who was spitting in his face, she was really trying not to crack up in this entire <laughs> thing. And you can see it. She's kind of just has this look of, she's covering her face with her hands and her head with her hands. And, but she was, because she was trying not to laugh. It's just such a funny, you know, Weird Al speech here, George speech. Try to win her back. So we next cut to R.J. Fletcher at his Channel 8 office, receiving a father's gift from his son. Uh, R.J. opens it and he asks, What is this piece of crap? And he throws it back at him and yells, I wanted a Rolex! <laughs> yeah, and then we see one of the other um, high-level employees. I think it's one of the guys that was in the meetings before. Yes, it is. And uh, he comes in, he's, he's talking about how, you know, U62 is getting a lot of talking up on the street and... You know, people are really getting into it, and he's, it's funny, because this scene, he's wearing a, uh, he has a mustache and a, a really uh, gaudy cowboy hat. Yeah. <laughs> with, like, rhinestones and all sorts of beads on it, and a raccoon tail in the back of it, and, you know, RJ goes off on this tangent about, you know, we're a network affiliate, and how dare you even come in with this, you know, talking to me about this U62, and as, get out of my office, and as the guy is leaving... RJ says, and take that ridiculous thing off. <laughs> and yet, and the poor guy has his look on his face, and he looks back, and he peels off his fake mustache he was wearing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is bizarre scene. It was so funny, because, again, like I said, this is the first time I'm seeing it. So he's like, and take that ridiculous thing off. And I'm waiting for him to, like, take the hat off, or he, he makes, like, like you said, a very sad face. And it's like, why is this lingering on this shot? And I cracked up when he just peels the mustache off and walks away. It was so funny. Yeah, just so random. So cutting back to Stanley's show, we see that 
now it's even bigger. It's just this carnival of noise and colors. People are cheering. You know, these are people of all ages. And Stanley is driving this little tow truck around the set. Uh, off to the side, we see there's a game going on. There's a little boy competing with two older people to find a marble in a sandbox full of oatmeal. <laughs> these, these are actually elderly people, too. It's kind of funny. <laughs> and, and when he finds it, he, Stanley tells him that he won a drink from the fire hose. So Stanley puts the boy on top of a mechanical horse, you know, like those coin-operated ones that you see, and he yeah. pulls it on a rope and positions him in front of this hose. And he's like, you know, are you ready? Turns it on, and the spray of water sends the boy flying off the horse halfway <laughs> across the set. The crowd's going wild. It's just crazy. Um, in the background of the scene in the crowd right behind the kid when he's getting hosed, we could see uh, actually Dr. Demento has a, has a cameo appearance. It's first of two in this movie. Oh, really? In, okay. In the audience, yep. It's a gentleman with a beard and wearing a yellow shirt. And Dr. Demento was a um, is still a, a radio host who does this kind of bizarre radio show and that's where weird al got his uh start yeah with a lot of his um parodies you know back in the late 70s yeah my bologna and another one rides the bus that's where uh it all started so he's he's in this scene he's also in one other scene we'll we'll talk about in a little bit so from here we next cut to the exterior of rel's apartment building as he receives a new shipment of animals for his show this is kind of disturbing it kind of implies that he's always refreshing his animal supply <laughs> a, lot, a lot of different animals too he's getting too this isn't just uh porcupines armadillos yeah one uh, aardvark one flamingos, flamingo yeah four porcupines two armadillos and three badgers and the uh the pile of pools is no longer there they uh, woke up and ran away yeah, that's right yep so as these crates are unloaded from the truck and the delivery man is giving a rundown of these animals, when he gets to three badgers, Rell stops him and the music gets very dramatic. And he asks, Badgers? Badgers? We don't need no stinking badgers. <laughs> Again, another movie parody. I forget what that's from. That is from the, the 1948 film Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Sierra Madre, yes. But okay. you hear it in everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a common, you know, commonly known saying. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the the last we see of Raul in the film. Yeah. So we cut back to Terry's house as she arrives back from the grocery store. Uh, she finds a bouquet of flowers just kind of duct taped to her front door. Uh, inside, she walks through a hallway full of heart-shaped balloons that say, I love you, as a table full of music boxes play. She gets to her living room, and she finds behind all of the balloons and music boxes a giant illuminated heart that says, George and Terry, underneath a sign that says, Life means nothing without you. <laughs> like, okay, George, he's going a, a little too strong here. But Terry is actually happily surprised. You can see where, you know, Terry maybe isn't as angry as she was the night she was stood up accidentally. Yep. So, you know, we, we can see he's she's warming up to, to the idea of getting back with him. And I like that about her character, where she didn't automatically go back to him right away, and she's really taken some effort, which is, I think, a, a good good feature uh, of her character. Now, from here, we cut to another commercial. This is a great one. This is a movie commercial taking place at a library. And we get this really strong, dramatic music playing, and an announcer describes the, uh, you know, the very strong presence of the title character, Conan the Librarian. This is the one I always remember most, and I remember seeing most as a uh, 12-year-old seeing this movie for the first time, <laughs> Conan the Librarian. And uh, basically, uh, a very good impersonator of Arnold Schwarzenegger's Conan, 
in a library, and there's a poor guy, a little spectacle guy, asking him for a book about um, astronomy. astronomy. <laughs> Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? And picks him up by his shirt and says that to him. Oh, it's really funny. Yeah, grabs him by the collar and just slowly lifts him <laughs> up. And I love, like, the expression on the guy's face as he's, like, waiting. And, you know, he's being lifted up to <laughs> eye level. It's so funny. Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> Cracks me up. <laughs> There's another scene here with, uh, you know, some teenagers and the kid brings a book to Conan and he's like, I'm sorry, these books are a little overdue. <laughs> and Conan takes out a sword and he slices the kid in half. This is the other reason the movie is read, P- read PG-13. <laughs> yes. Again, it's not graphic at all. It looks more fake than anything else, but the sword does cut him in half. Yeah, it's not even bloody, but it's just the idea of like, <laughs> you know, if you look, it quickly switches to a dummy. You know, it's a you know, kind of a cheesy effect, but it's just very funny. Played up for laughs totally. Yeah. <laughs> so as this commercial ends, we fade back to Stanley Spadowski's clubhouse as Stanley eats a slice of watermelon. Does it taste like poop? Yes. <laughs> he switches to cornflakes, and then he fishes around for uh, the toy in the box. And this is basically what it is. It's Stanley just like, oh, you know, uh, I want to do this now. I'm going to do this now. And people just can't get enough of it. They're loving it. Now, as this plays uh, in the background, we see that George is arranging Channel 62's fall schedule on this giant board. Uh, did you notice any of the uh, programs that we see here? Yes, I did. Um, the one that stands out that he moves is The Wonderful World of Phlegm, <laughs> which is two hours long. Yes. For some reason. It's like one of the longest things they show. Um, we also see uh, Name That Stain, <laughs> The Young and the Dyslexic. Um, see, I saw some other ones here, too. Secrets of the Universe, Leave It to Bigfoot, which is a Leave It to Beaver parody, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, Wheel of Fish, of course. Stanley Spadowski's Clubhouse is on the same time, 7 yep. to 8, every day. Rowell's Wild Kingdom is on the board. Yeah. Uh, Wide World of Tractor Poles. World the Lice is right. The Lice is right. Uh, the Flying Pope. Dog Racing from Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> yeah. And you'll also notice, too, that Beverly Hillbillies and Mr. Ed are there still. He does keep those classic TV shows on the schedule. Yes. He does keep them on. Yep. One that he puts on there as we're watching this, and he's talking about it, actually, about the Friday night lineup, Druids on Parade, <laughs> and Volcano Worshippers Hour. Underwater Bingo for Teens, and Fun with Dirt. <laughs> An interesting thing is uh, Volcano Worshippers Hour. That's actually based on a, a club that um, Al had in uh, high school, which he called Volcano Worshippers Club. Oh. And the only reason he did it so he can get it in the yearbook, make up his own club to get the club in the yearbook. Oh, wow, that's funny. Yeah, that's an homage to that. So as this is going on, Bob next opens the station mail, and he kind of silently stands in shock as he reads the ratings. And, you know, George says, you know, don't tell me we actually showed up on the list. And Bob just kind of is like, uh, we're number one. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they were shocked. They, they're they the highest rated station in the town. They have three shows in the top five. They beat out all other networks with a 60 share. And they scream at each other face to face in excitement. Yeah, which is, which is very funny that they've gone all this way up from, uh, you know, nothing to the number one station in such a short period of time. It's all due to Stanley and uh, his clubhouse. Yeah. And the other shows that George and came up with. And the other shows, yeah, yeah. After they had the funding for that and, and the uh, you know the popularity of that. I mean, man, if, that, if a channel like that showed up, I'd watch it all the time, sure. Of course, yeah. 
So from this moment of excitement, we jump cut to a promo for weekend programming at U62. And so here we get a whole bunch of uh, little cutaway shows, little gags here. So <laughs> the first show is Stay Fit with Mike and Spike. We get these two punk-looking guys. One has a mohawk and spike collar and everything, and they're slamming their foreheads together. Uh, that's going to be a <laughs> Saturday at 8. I love this next one. Uh, Chef Bernie's Bowling for Burgers. <laughs> this is Chef in the background of the bowling alley flipping burgers and while they're bowling for him. <laughs> then we see a, a man on stage in his undershirt and boxers, and he's dealing cards on a table. Uh, we learn that this is a show called Strip Solitaire, hosted by Noodles Macintosh, Sunday at 8. This trip solitaire is so stupid. <laughs> it's funny to see Noodles, uh, you know, taking over as a host of a show. It's pretty funny. Yes. Yeah. And we get next we get practical jokes and bloopers with the uh, cameraman from before you mentioned is uh, plays a part by tripping woman as she comes out of a store, a grocery store, having her falling over at groceries go everywhere. <laughs> The guy actually tripping her is, you know, the cameraman, Luby Washington. Yeah. Like you said, he's, you know, given uh, another role in the station, just like Noodles was as well, you know. They get to host their own shows, which is pretty funny. He has this look like, I don't know, he does this little head shrug after he trips her. It's yeah, just eating an apple, <laughs> very casually. <laughs> and finally, we get celebrity mud wrestling. Uh, we see two women in bikinis wrestling Mikhail Gorbachev into the mud. It's uh, Sunday at 9.30. Which is timely for that, you know, this time period, 89. And they, at the end of the movie, they actually thank the uh, lookalike agency that they got this particular gentleman from. And that's where his credit appears. Not with the regular cast, but at the very end, uh, with the thank you. to the. So they must have gotten him locally. Yeah. And so, yeah, I looked up who these women were. And one of them actually was uh, from Australia. And her family owns the largest paint company in Australia. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man, just try to make it big in Hollywood. That's okay. So we also see here at the very end of this, the advertisement for Stanley Spadowski's Clubhouse, mm -hmm. pulling something out of his nose. Oh, yeah. And here's where we see the second uh, Dr. Demento, where Stanley is actually going over and spraying whipped cream in the gentleman's oh, okay. mouth. That's Dr. Demento right there. So. Oh, nice. I didn't catch that. Yep. So from this promo, we cut back to R.J. Fletcher's office as he's berating the three executives for Channel 8 losing sponsors, money, and credibility. He says that they need to do something about it, and he asks, who owns that station? So this immediately cuts to George's Uncle Harvey relaxing in the pool to Weird Al's first original song on the UHF soundtrack, Let Me Be Your Hog. Which he wrote specifically for this, this uh, movie, as you said. He wanted this song to be Kung Fu Fighting... Yeah. But it couldn't get the rights to it, or too expensive. And um, so he wrote, uh, let me be your hog for this scene. I think it <laughs> fits more appropriately. And that's all in the soundtrack. You have the soundtrack to this, right? I do, yes. I do have the soundtrack to this. And I was do it this morning, actually. Let me be your hog. <laughs> in there. So yeah, Un Uncle Harvey, he's you know, just floating around in the pool, just relaxing. And the phone rings, and when Harvey answers, it's Big Louie, that mysterious man that called him at the beginning of the film. Uh, this time he calls with bad news, saying that none of his horses came in, and he owes $75,000, and he has to pay in two days. Uh, yeah. In this scene, we also get a little more on Big Louie. Uh, we see that he, he's smoking the cigar from a prosthetic hand, which he uh, twists off and replaces with a cleaver hand, and then he cuts, I don't know, like a big salami that's placed <laughs> like on his desk. salami. By a butler comes over, a white glove butler. <laughs> Puts a salami on a portable cutting board and he just cuts it with his cleaver. It's just weird. Yeah. 
So, yeah, Harvey just can't believe it. He flips off of the <laughs> the, the pool raft into the water, and he's just kind of sitting there kind of in shock. Uh, the phone rings again, but this time it's R.J. Fletcher, and that's the end of the scene. Yeah. And I always wonder if this was, um, I think it was just coincidental, but it's always had the thought in the back of my mind that R.J. maybe knew something on them and was able to kind of, you know, arrange this so that his this his horses wouldn't come in somehow or, to, you know, finagle something. Um, but I think it was just probably coincidental that he's happened to call right after he got this call from Big Lily. Yeah, that's my guess because remember it ended the last time we saw Fletcher before this. He says, you know, who's who owns that station? So he yeah. probably did the research and got Harvey Bilchick's name and decides, well, let me call him. And it's just coincidental that here's this opportunity now. Yeah, maybe he needs the cash. So you know, we next open on George at his desk at Channel sixty two, and uh, R.J. Fletcher walks in, begins measuring the room with a tape measure right in front of his face. Uh, they they ask what's going on, and he says, "Well, you know, I'm the new owner of the station." And Harvey, we learn, is flying in that night to close the deal. Bob says uh, something like, you know, isn't it illegal to own two TV stations in the same town? And Fletcher kind of laughs and says, well, I'll just have to turn this into a parking lot. There's that moment there where Bob thinks he's got him, I think. RJ has his fake little look on his face like, oh, maybe he's right. And he <laughs> spins it around. Says, well, he's he's a great villain in this. It's so, he is. so good. So we cut back from this scene to Harvey's house as he prepares to leave for the airport. He tells his wife, Esther, that he just has to wrap up a little business deal. So, you know, she has no idea what's happening. Uh, as Harvey walks towards the cab that's parked outside his house, Esther picks up the phone and it's George. So we quickly cut to Harvey being angrily called back into the house. He almost got into the cab, but not quite. Now on the phone with Harvey, George asks for at least a chance to match Fletcher's offer. Harvey agrees, but George has to come up with $75,000 by Friday night. Uh, George, Bob, and Pamela, they stand around. They wonder, how are they going to raise all of this money? And how are they going to keep an eye on Fletcher during all of this? Because, you know, this guy has been meddling and he's threatening to shut down the station. They know that something's going to be up. If they're yeah. going to try to do something to raise this money, this guy is going to make it very difficult for them. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, I guess the one, I don't want to say I have a criticism, but, because it, it doesn't really matter in the long, it really goes on with the story, but if the station had this much prestige at this point, you'd think they could get a loan. You know, a bank would give them 75 grand. Yeah, I was thinking to, that know, too. To keep going, and, and it wouldn't be a big deal at all. It'd be one thing if they weren't doing any anything good, but they obviously have tons of sponsors and a great plan and the number one station in town. It should be a, a non-issue, really. So as they're talking about, you know, how are we going to keep an eye on him, we see Philo listening in from behind the control room door. So that night, as Fletcher fills his briefcase with money and he leaves his office, we see a drill coming down from the ceiling in Fletcher's office. Uh, we cut up into the ceiling and we see Philo setting up this huge surveillance camera. It's almost like the size of Noodle's tv camera it is yeah with one lens popping out of the ceiling yeah very uh, obviously too it's pretty funny yeah so we next cut to the airport as harvey flies in via continental airlines by the way yeah fletcher meets him there and tells him that you know he's his guest while he's in town and he tries to get him to sign the deal right on the spot has the cash right there yeah yeah it's like sign it right on the trunk now uncle harvey makes the you know tells him the bad news that he gave george you know, a chance to meet the offer, and, you know, but uh, don't worry, there's no way the kid's going to get 75000 so let's wait a couple more days. Yeah. And RJ is, is not pleased with that one bit. <laughs> no, we get a great reaction shot here, where he stands Snarl. there. Snarl. Yeah, kind of growls in anger. 
Uh, this next cuts to a promo for another new Channel 62 show, Town Talk with George. This is very much uh, a, a Geraldo Rivera parody. Oh, uh, so much, yeah. Geraldo was a huge talk show at the time. You know, just the topics he's going into, but the fact that Al Capone's uh, glove compartment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I actually remember, um, and we should do a show on it one of these days, that's actually a parody on when Geraldo, they broke into Al Capone's vault, which is this underground vault somewhere in Chicago that they discovered, and it was supposed to be this big thing. I remember watching this live as they did it. My parents there were watching it, and they opened up this vault. You know, it's like money down there, hidden stuff, whatever. Um, and it's just like cans and beer bottles and stuff, and <laughs> there's like nothing, nothing in it. It's a huge <laughs> letdown. So that's all the parody comes from this. He's opened up Al Capone's glove compartment, and he finds a bunch of maps in it, which is pretty funny. Yeah, essentially nothing. Yep. And we also see him deal with a number of controversial characters, uh, including a little girl for some reason. Like, mixed in with these scary and imposing figures. With this freaky smile on her face, too, as it goes by her in this list, this line of people. And, uh, yeah, one of them picks up a chair, slams him right in the face, which is another Geraldo reference. There was a, there was an episode where he did actually get hurt in an episode. Yep. It was all bandaged up. Yeah, so we, we see that George is also likewise bandaged up in this promo. <laughs> so, uh, from here we cut to George. And now he's just sitting there very sad on the front steps of the station. Stanley walks up to him, and I love this line here, this little exchange. You know, George, what's wrong? He's like, yeah, you don't want to know. He's like, why'd I ask? (laughs) (laughs) The funniest part about this is when he says, I need $75,000. And Stanley goes to this whole routine of opening up his wallet. See (laughs) if he has in his wallet. (laughs) takes it out and looks through all the, the pockets like, oh, I'm sorry I can't help you there. <laughs> and George tries to think of something he can do, you know. But all of a sudden, he gets this idea. We, we kind of hear a bell as his eyebrows raise, you know. We see that he's, ah, oh, I got it, you know. And it, this immediately cuts to Stanley on stage yelling that the U-62 telethon is on the air. Uh, we also see a very large set for the telethon, a packed house in attendance, and cutting to Channel 8. Uh, Fletcher's son tells him to put on 62 because something funny is going on. Uh, when Fletcher turns on the TV, we hear that they are not looking for donations. You know, that's what I thought was going to happen. They were just going to raise funds. Uh, instead, they're offering the town a unique business opportunity. Uh, Noodles demonstrates, you know, that this is a stock certificate. And he says that they want to sell 7,500 shares of Channel 62 stock at $10 a piece. And then that way, they'll save the station and it will belong to everyone. Hmm. And Stanley issues an SOS, which is save our station, like a large boat-shaped countdown clock that they're going to be marking time with. So Fletcher is not happy. We cut back to a now darkened Channel 8 office, and Fletcher tells his thugs that it's time that they paid Mr. Spadowski a little visit as he snaps a pencil, which is a number two pencil, by the way. Number two pencil, yeah, correct number two pencil. So that's why he wants number two. Is they're easy to snap in a fit of anger. Well, it's, it's uh, the lead is you know more nimble. <laughs> Meanwhile, the telethon is going great. We see crowds are flocking to the station. Calls are coming in. The board is already showing over twenty three thousand uh, dollars. Also, we cut to Terry watching it at home. Yeah, next we cut the scene with Stanley. It's almost like a a Rocky type scene. <laughs> yeah, where he's exhausted and you know George is spraying him down with water and towels and. He's saying, you got to keep on going. We're going to get through this. I love when he's like, well, can I get you anything? He's like, uh, Play-Doh. No, no, uh, bubbles. <laughs> I want big bubbles. 
giant bubbles. So George leaves to, you know, to get him some bubbles. And so Stanley's there by himself. And all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and it's someone claiming to have pizza for Stanley. Uh, when, he opens, and when he opens the door, he's abducted. You know, they just, we just see a pair of arms grab him and pull him through the doorway. And uh, he winds up blindfolded in a car with four of Fletcher's men. Uh, we learn that they're not going to kill him. They're just going to keep him on ice. They figured as, as long as they have the star of 62 away from the telethon for a while, they won't raise the money. Stanley's going on to this rant about pizza and what kind of pizza he likes. He likes the <laughs> <Yes>. anchovies. <laughs> and after they start, they, they're, they're sick of him already and they just want to kill him. And Stanley has this line where he goes, wait a minute. I begin to think you guys aren't from the pizza store after all. <laughs> <laughs> the guy with the gun here, they, he's credited as Killer Thug. He's the guy that just was like, oh, let me kill him. Uh-huh. He's still acting. In fact, he was just in Dumb and Dumber 2, amongst other things. Oh, really? He's, uh, he's now 81. Oh, at wow. At the time of this recording, yeah. Meanwhile, at the telethon, we see some weird acts going on. <laughs> these, these guys with two prosthetic noses and chins, and they're just making these odd noises. <laughs> I think they actually have a name. I think the Kipler twins or the Kipler kids. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, did yeah. see that. They're actually like a weird act that's that's well known. <laughs> it is weird. So by now they've realized that Stanley is missing and it's actually costing them money. So George asks Pamela to stall and they've called the police also. But Bob has a feeling that Fletcher is behind it. And back at Channel 8, we see that Fletcher's men are playing poker, and Stanley's kind of sitting off to the side, tied up and blindfolded, and he is annoying them. <laughs> and Killer Thug just wants to keep killing him again. He wants to keep on begging to kill him. <laughs> and why didn't he gag him to begin with is beyond me. <laughs> or put him in another room. I guess they wanted to keep an eye on him, but man, he's just going on and on, and they just can't take it. Now, cutting back to Channel 62, we see that the telethon is dying down. Uh, no calls are coming in. Everyone's practically falling asleep. Uh, the only act that's going on right now is an upside-down yodeler playing the guitar. <laughs> that was pretty funny. I cracked up about that. <laughs> in the previous scene, too, it's funny to note that when they're dragging Stanley into the room when he's uh, doing the Bonanza theme song. Yes. And he gives that line, don't you like Bonanza? That was originally supposed to be Helter Skelter oh. by the Beatles. But it wasn't because uh, Michael Richards didn't know the words to Helter Skelter. <laughs> so they changed it to Bonanza for that. Oh, wow. Helter Skelter would have been weird. That's a bizarre song for that. <laughs> so from here, we get another commercial. They cut away to a trailer for a new film, Gandhi 2. <laughs> this is, a, you know, of course, a, this would be a sequel to the, the Ben Kingsley film in which he won an Oscar. Uh, here we see Gandhi fighting crime on the streets with a lead pipe. It's kind of like Gandhi meets Shaft. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. <laughs> yeah. Really weird. Uh, Gandhi here is being played by Weird Al's manager and the director of the film, Jay LaVey. Yep, he's rolling this. Yeah. <clears throat> here we see that Gandhi is fighting criminals on the street in hand-to-hand combat. He drives around in, I think it's like a red Porsche. Ferrari. Is it a Ferrari? It's, it's a red Ferrari, yeah. And at one point, he's on a date with two ladies. Somebody calls him Baldy, ends up taking out a machine gun. This is a, yeah, very uh, <laughs> interesting show. sequel, yeah. Well, it's actually funny because when in the scene with the Ferrari where he, the thug comes out and he jumps out of the car and he smashes the thug's head against the car, yeah, the roof of the car, they actually damaged the Ferrari. Oh, no way. And and thankfully it was covered by the insurance of the production company because it was, you know, who knows how much that would cost to fix. Oh, boy, yeah. Yep. That's funny. Gandhi too. So we cut to the next morning as Fletcher enters the Channel 8 building and he stops at the door by the hobo. You know, he's pestering him for change, and, and Fletcher only gives him one penny. 
But the hobo is very grateful to receive it. He looks at it and he's like, wow! I can't believe it! Yeah. <laughs> it was a very funny scene. This is a funny turnaround. Now Channel 8 has the hobo outside their building. Yeah. I didn't even notice that. That's true, yeah. yeah. So we see that Terry is there, and she follows Fletcher into the building, and she asks to talk to him about Channel 62. And as Terry tries to appeal to Fletcher to, you know, let the two channels coexist, and, you know, how George is doing something good for the community, we see Philo in the control room, and he flips a switch to record this conversation. Yep. Uh, Philo zooms right in on Fletcher's face just as he tells her that the community means as much to him as a festering ball of dog snot. <laughs> so we cut back to Stanley and the thugs. They've had enough of him. He's absolutely driving them nuts. At one point, his blindfold fell off, and now he can see his precious old mop in the back of the room. Yep. And, uh, yeah, this is a, a turning point here, because he screams, My mop! And he snaps the ropes holding him as he darts out of the chair through Fletcher's men over their poker table, straight for the mop. And now he begins to fight them off with the mop, wielding it like a, a lightsaber at one point. There's actually a lightsaber noise sound effects for a second in one of the scenes. Yeah, this is funny. And he fights his way all the way up to Fletcher's office, where he kind of barricades himself at first, but they break in and they hold him at gunpoint. This cracks me up, this barricade scene when he goes in Fletcher's office. Because he's stacking stuff against the door. You notice that? <laughs> yes. Like a chair, and he puts like a book and balances the book against the door. <laughs> Gat's going to hold him, and he just like finishes it, and he steps back from the door, and then they shoot the window out. Yeah. And can come in that way. Uh, fortunately, because this all ends up in Fletcher's office, Philo is able to spot it, and uh, George is made aware. So George tells Philo that he'll handle this, and he runs out into the night. I figured he was going to jump into the car, but no, he just runs out on foot. Yeah, he could take the Nash, but I guess not. Okay. <laughs> and he pauses for a moment, and this transitions into a Rambo fantasy sequence. Uh, we get a, a shot from behind of George tying a bandana around his forehead, and we get a look at him, and he's wearing this fake oily muscle suit. It's really funny. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very funny suit. Very funny outfit uh, costume he has here. And so here we get this, like, Rambo scene, but the the villains are kind of like the Channel 8 employees. It's kind of like this odd fantasy. But he, we see at one point he gets fired at from, like, three feet away. But he takes out a bow and arrow and explodes the guy shooting at him, leaving only a steaming pile of boots. This is like over-the-top action sequence here. He sneaks into the enemy camp, and he finds Stanley in a cage and breaks him out. Uh, they buy tickets for helicopter rides and run for the helicopter. And actually, uh, right there is where there was supposed to be a, a cameo. The helicopter um, ride salesperson, I guess you can call him, the vendor, mm -hmm. was supposed to be Sylvester Stallone. Oh, really? Yeah, but there's oh. a scheduling conflict. He was committed to do it um, at, in that cameo, but there was a, a conflict in the schedule and he couldn't do it. Oh, too bad. That would have been funny. Yeah. Uh, at one point now, an army fires down at them, so he just wipes them out. Uh, before they can get in, one more person fires at them. So George takes out his gun and, and blows up a house, a bridge, a vehicle. There's <laughs> like another structure. It's just uh, everything bursts into flames. It, like the physics make no sense. It's so stupid. Uh, at the last second, a dying, uh, I guess he's a Channel 8 enemy soldier, fires at George. George kind of whips his head to the side, and when he turns back, he has the bullet in his teeth. And he kind of chews it up and spits it back as automatic fire, which blows up the guy in a fireball. <laughs> Piece of him going everywhere. So George and Stanley take off in the chopper, only to be faced by Fletcher in a Channel 8 chopper. We see he has even a Channel 8 helmet and everything. 
Yep. They fly straight at one another, and George yells that he fires, and he blows up Fletcher. And then he goes after other famous structures around the world, like Eiffel Tower, Roman Coliseum, the Hollywood <laughs> sign. Just and crazy. Stan is cracking up as he's doing it, too. It's hilarious. Yeah. This, of course, was all George's dream. None of this really happened. And we cut to reality as George bursts open the doors of Fletcher's office and he screams at the men holding Stanley. He's like, ah! <laughs> That's a very good impression of Sylvester Sloan. Um, yeah. I'm your worst nightmare. That's, a, of course, a quote from Rambo 3. Yep. Uh, they now hold Stanley and George at gunpoint. You know, of course, that did nothing. And now they threaten to take both of them for a little ride and out of commission for good. And George bends his finger and says, Red Rom, Red Rom, which is a reference to The Shining. Which is a totally um, improvised line also. Okay. <laughs> he says the Red Rom thing. That's funny. So just then, you know, things are looking at their absolute worst for George and Stanley in the station. One of the goons hears a noise. He's looking around and we see a, a door marked very clearly supplies, the supply closet. And he opens it up. Only to find behind it, Cooney and some of the other karate students. <laughs> Who then yells, supplies! That cracks me up every single time I see that. Supplies. Supplies. So one of them hits the guy with a flying kick as we cut back to the telephone. Back at the station, we see the telephone is very still slow going. Uh, even despite the acts that are... We now see it's an Uncle Sam on stilts and some painted torso people. Oh, yeah, that was weird. Yeah. And uh, one guy in the crowd yells, Hey, everybody, they're back! And the crowd runs outside to greet George, Stanley, Cooney, and crew as they all drive back to the station in a Jeep. And, uh, like, uh, Stanley is holding up his mop. He got it back. Yep. Everyone oh. celebrates. Huge crowd scene. All these truckers are coming off, too, also. Out of the fields and everything. It's very <laughs> yeah. funny. Uh, meanwhile, back at Channel 8, uh, Fletcher returns only to find his office completely wrecked with his men unconscious and strewn about. So at, at Channel 62, Stanley is standing there and he gives a rousing speech to the crowd about the evil forces of Channel 8 and he's going on and on. Now, R.J. Fletcher then makes a special Channel 8 editorial broadcast to speak about Channel 62, disrupting the moral fiber of the community. And as he's going on and on talking about how bad Channel 62 is, Philo just happens to flip a channel override switch, changing the feed, just as Fletcher says that he has an important message for everyone. Mm. Now Philo plays, of course, Fletcher's earlier line to Terry about the community being a festering bowl of dog snot. Uh, as well as some other lines we didn't get in that scene about how the, the townspeople are maggots that make them want to puke. And, the uh, intelligence of, uh, could fill, could tie their shoelace of the, the combined intelligence. Yeah, really, uh, criticizing and, and denigrating the, uh, community. Yeah, they're all mindless sheep. He has them exactly where they want them. And we, yeah. we cut to people watching. There's an elderly lady that's very upset at what she's seeing. So Philo switches back. And we just see Fletcher kind of scramble in shock. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> so back at the telethon, we see that the money raised now tops $73,000. So they're so close. And this is the, the night that it's going to end. Uh, as fans are waving cash in the air and George is counting the money, Terry walks up to him and, and George is very surprised. Yeah. Another great line of dialogue here where he's like, I thought you never wanted to see me again. And she's like, well, whatever gave you that idea? And he replies, well, I think my first clue was when you said you never wanted to see me again. <laughs> and she says, oh. <laughs> 
But now all is well between the two, and she hugs George, and you know she says that she's proud of him. And now Uncle Harvey is also there, bumps into him, literally. And this is, uh, it's almost 10 o'clock, and they're waiting for, uh, that's the deadline for Big Louie to come and, and collect the 75000 So yeah. right at the last minute before the uh, deadline ends. Yeah, George wants a little more time because he thinks they'll have it by then. It's just a little later than expected, but Harvey tells him, no, you know, Big Louie is a very punctual kind of guy. Yep. So with one minute left on the clock, Fletcher arrives at the station and pulls the plug on the countdown clock right at 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. Uh, At this point, they've only raised $73,240, and of course, you know, like we said, they need $75. Just then, a black Cadillac limousine with B. Louie license plate parts the crowd as ominous music plays. And so Harvey asks Fletcher for the money, telling him he won, and Fletcher says, yeah, all in due time, and he wants to make a speech to the crowd first. Fletcher grabs the mic, begins this long-winded speech about shutting down Channel 62... And as he's going on and on, the hobo approaches George in the crowd with a wad of cash, asking if it's too late to buy any shares. Mm. And he has $2,000, which just so happens to be enough to save the station. Mm -hmm. He slaps it into George's hand, telling him to keep the change. (laughs) Take whatever you got left. So Fletcher is so caught up in, you know, his own hubris here. He's just rambling on and on. Uh, This is like his victory lap, I guess. So as this is going on, George motions to Bob, you know, toss me the bag full of money. And they rush the bags over to the window of Big Louie's limo. You know, he's like, oh, it's all there, sir, 75000 And Fletcher starts to notice George having his Uncle Harvey sign the deal. And it's too late. George screams, we did it! The station's ours! And the crowd goes crazy. Uh, I think Cooney uh, pulls the board down and says 75000 The uh, SOS boat-shaped countdown clock explodes with fireworks. Good thing that thing was brought outside. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good insight, yeah. So Fletcher just can't believe it. You know, here he was, you know, giving his victory speech, and he threatens to sue Harvey for breach of oral contract, and he's like, ah, blow it out your ears, scuzzbag. Oh, I love this scene, too. uh, RJ, this keeps on getting worse for him, too. Yeah, as Harvey walks away, Fletcher is approached by a man who's from the FCC who informs him, well, you know, your station is late filing its license renewal, and what does he say something about, like, and since I've been watching you... He say, it usually wouldn't be a big deal, I'll just let it go, but since, you know, he saw what he said to the community, he's just going to take their license away. Yeah, revoked effective immediately. Yep. And of course, just as that happens, this breaking news is immediately covered by... None other than Pamela Finkelstein of Channel 62 News. Talking about how he's, you know, his, the license is gone, and yeah, they're, it, the expressions on RJ's faces is hilarious. His looking <laughs> back is total confusion and disgust. <laughs> and as Fletcher's son tries to run over to his father, he's tripped by a foot, and he lands face first into a puddle of mud, and we see that the foot belonged to Noodles McIntosh, finally getting his revenge from earlier in the film. Hmm. He just feels dead. So everything's, you know, getting wrapped up in this final scene. It's so funny. Uh, yeah. Next, George thanks Philo for going above and beyond to help them. And Philo tells him that it appears his work on this planet is now complete. And he must now return to his home on the planet Zarkon. <laughs> George is just kind of like, yeah, okay. He just walks away towards the, towards the field. Yeah, and kind of in the background, because Harvey walks up next to congratulate him. And just yeah. when you see the background, Philo continues to walk away. 
And just it finally just morphs into this alien. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very uh very well done graphic art you know uh, what's the word I'm trying to think it's it's uh, like a claymation effect claymation yeah. effect it just morphs into this blue ball and flies away yeah teleports away but it's almost like the large marge effect as we kind of talked about last week you know that's uh kind of a scary claymation face added over live footage so it's pretty funny yeah I don't know why Philo's real form it was so evil looking he has like a ton of eyes and sharp teeth and everything and a flickering <laughs> tongue. But whatever, he's a good alien. And so next, things get even worse for Fletcher because remember that lady that saw his broadcast? That elderly woman that was so offended? She shows up and kicks him right in the groin. (laughs) (laughs) Gives him a knee, yeah. Just just one more, you know, just one more thing. And so we cut to uh, George thanking Stanley and he awards him a custom trophy calling him the world's greatest janitor and TV star. Mm Mm-hmm. We see the trophy, I, th- I think, has a, uh, a mop in one hand and a microphone in the other. Yep, yep. George is just so over the moon about it. He can't believe it. He's like, oh, you're my best friend ever. He's running away to show everybody else, you know, what George just gave him for a trophy. And so we cut back to the sore Fletcher. He's still, like, slowly trying to get up. And that hobo approaches him and thanks him for the rare 1955 double-dyed Denver mint penny that he gave him earlier in the day. Uh, we find out it was worth a fortune, enough to buy a bunch of shares of the station, with enough left over to buy a Rolex. <laughs> and this is just so many things. Like, I mean, that's why the hobo was so happy to receive a penny. You know, that, that's he saw what it was right away. Yeah, exactly. You know, he he knew that this is a, a very rare one. Not only was that to, enough to save the station, you know, Fletcher realizes it was his act that caused the station to be saved. But not only that, but he bought a Rolex, the gift that he wanted that Father's Day. So this is just so much for Fletcher. And he just cries and the hobo gives him a hug (laughs) to embrace. Breaks down. (laughs) So next we cut to Terry and she asks George if, you know, she can be a part of those dreams that he has, those daydreams. And this moment transforms into a Gone with the Wind parody. Yep, at the end. Uh, George talks about leaving and uh, Terry asks to wait for tomorrow. Because tomorrow is another day. Which is, believe it or not, the last line in Gone with the Wind in the uh, in the book. Tomorrow's another day. They have this passionate kiss. The lights dim and the music swells to a crescendo. And that's the end of the movie. From here we cut to the closing credits. And Weird Al's song UHF plays over the closing credits. Yes. And so that that's the end of the film. What a great movie. Yeah, definitely, definitely a great, great, great film. Um, again, not everyone's cup of tea, I guess, but it's just so funny. And, it, you know, I watched this movie and watching it again this time, Scott, and there's not one scene in this movie that doesn't bring a smile to my face. It's, <laughs> I, I don't think there's any other movie that I can't, I can say that about. That I love every single scene. Mm-hmm. This, I, I could flip to any single scene in this film and I love it. It's just so funny. Yeah. And, you know, it's just too bad, like we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, that it just didn't get the the um, attention when it first came out. And, you know, maybe it was before its time. Who knows? But it's just so... This really shows how talented Weird Al really is. He's just such a funny, funny guy. And, and such a talent. And I'm glad he's getting the respect, finally. Especially with his last album that did phenomenally well. He's just getting the respect he deserves. Yeah, it was a great showcase of his talents. It showed the how he could... You know, do parodies of songs, which, you know, he was well known for at that point, only releasing two albums. 
Yeah. But, you know, it showed how he could do parodies well of anything. You know, he could act well. He could, you know, do music and just create this very funny movie. It, you know, like I said, only two albums had come out at that point. Now he has how many studio albums? So many. Oh, so many. Yeah. Every couple of years he, he came out with a new one, especially in the 90s. Huge amount of material. Just like this movie, his albums are the same way. Every single song is just hilarious, and it does such a such a good job with his art and what he does. So, if you haven't never heard of Weird Al or haven't listened to him, by all means, go on iTunes or you know get a CD and just listen. It's just really really funny stuff. I'll tell you what you can do. There's a a new box set called Squeeze Box. It's a, a career spanning 15 disc box set. It's available for pre order right now. And it is awesome. It's shaped like an accordion and everything. Oh, really? I didn't, yeah. I didn't see that. Okay. I'll have to pick that up. Yeah, Weird Al uh, just uh, tweeted it from his uh, Twitter account a couple days ago. And uh, I think uh, Kevin, who who's uh, a regular on the show, he uh, mentioned that he decided to get it and uh, put in his pre-order. And it looks awesome. So definitely check that out. It's really cool. It's a, like a lock case shaped like an accordion with uh, all 15 of his albums so far. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. And it's so great. You know, here he is. We we talked last week about Comedy Bang Bang. I mean, this was just last year. This is 1989, and the, the guy has just never stopped. He's just been this uh, amazing talent in music and comedy for so many decades now. Yep, and he'll keep on going, I'm sure. Yeah, he's in, I was fortunate enough, I think I mentioned it before, to see him in, in a concert live for mm. free, believe it or not, as a town fair. This is probably 15 years ago now, and it was awesome. It was probably the best show I ever saw live. That's awesome. The costume changes after between every song. It was amazing. That's great. Yeah. Encouraged to see, see Weird Al whenever you can in a, in a live. Or uh, definitely pick up this Blu-ray or this DVD of the uh, the UHF uh, 20th anniversary. There's all kinds of special features. Like Sean said, the commentary is great. I'm going to have to uh, keep an eye out for it as well. Yeah, commentary and also the the Easter eggs. There's tons of Easter eggs in the DVD and very funny Easter eggs too. And you can definitely look them up yourself. But this funny stuff that it even makes the the DVD menus uh, entertaining, which is hilarious. There's also a great DVD. I think it's called The Complete Weird Al. And I think complete's misspelled, right? I'm trying to think of C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, I think it's. And it's a a whole bunch of his music videos on a DVD compilation. Oh, yes. Yeah, I actually have that, and I I think I let you borrow that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's one. That's another one that I'm very surprised I found because I don't think I've seen it again. I found it in a random music store one day, and I had to snag it. And it's um, a great DVD with all or most of his videos. We don't think about that. He actually does music videos for every one of his songs, pretty much, or mm. you know, big songs, and they're they're excellent. They're excellent videos. I mean, they're very well done, um, and they're very funny. So. I mean, this is going back to his first ones, like Ricky, which is one of his first, I think, major songs. But you got, you know, just just all of them. It's just very, very good. Very, uh, if you could find it, it might be on Amazon or something or eBay. Definitely pick that up, too. It's awesome. And that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, whether you would keep the red snapper, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Sean, do you have anything you want to plug? Um, just I'm on Twitter also. You could see me off of the Hitting Play page. I forget what my Twitter handle is. Nice. <laughs> you could never remember it. It's I'm in the description. There. It's in the description, so you can see me there. Um, we're still working on getting the subreddit for uh, the podcast, which I'd like to get going pretty soon. There's a whole bunch of, you know, red tape I'm trying to figure out about that. So 
Hopefully, pretty soon we'll be able to announce the, uh, our subreddit on Reddit for the podcast so we can do some more communicating there. And stay tuned to our Twitter account. If we get anything new to announce, we'll uh, be posting it there as well. Of course, yeah. At Hitting Play. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. Uh, by the time you hear this, Vine will be over. So I don't even know if my stuff will be there anymore, but I have moved to Instagram. There my name is MC underscore and underscore friends. There I will be posting a lot of uh, drawings, some photos, and a lot of the uh, flip page animation that I do and stop motion and stuff like that. So uh, check me out there. If you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. For Android users, we are also available to stream in or download on Stitcher. We can be found on TuneIn Radio, as well as the Google Play Music app, so check us out there. Also, if you have a Roku device, you can download the TuneIn Radio channel. You can set Hitting Play as a favorite, and you can uh, stream these episodes right from your television, right after they are posted. Well, we have been Sean and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Supplies! Supplies.